0: All things, n-
1: <laughs> All things are nothing to me. All things are um, uh, nothing to me. All things <laughs> are nothing to me. All things nothing
0: to me folks. The They're nothing <laughs> indefinable, imperceptible.
1: <laughs> including the ultimate form of security, which is a cat's cat.
2: Violence without This is the typical violence of information.
1: It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here.
2: Welcome to Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry, as always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before I introduce our guest today, I do want to beg for your patronage. I have a Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Consider throwing us a dollar um, if you're enjoying the content. But once again, it is egoism month. Pew, 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 pew. I've got a <laughs> part two of Ego Book, a series I'm doing with the Facebook villain himself, John Zitterman, co-host of Beep Beep Lettuce. Uh, also joining us today is Adam from the Acid Horizon podcast. Hello. Welcome to the happy hour, gentlemen.
0: Thank you for having me back. Always glad to be here.
1: Yeah, very glad to be here. Cheers for having me. I've been g- gagging to go on about this uh, Shterna this stuff.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm a little intimidated having somebody on. You're going for your your doctorate in in Stirner and Hegel studies,
1: is that right? That's what I've told the funding board. If I can deliver it after three years from now, uh, hopefully, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Whom did you have to bribe to uh, to get approval? <laughs> <laughs> Oof, I don't know. May, may, maybe this is maybe this is some sort of government psyop where they think, okay, we'll get this guy to link Sterner to insurrectionary anarchism. Right? Yeah, we boom. can throw him in jail, and then the rest you're, of the Gamians—you'll be clapped in irons. Clapped <laughs> in
2: irons—that's the—that's the phrase. Were you having a? Did, did I see that you you have a beef with Graham Harmon?
1: No. So, okay. This is an extended and very British copy pasta. So there was some reactionary <laughs> actor um who's i'm not going to name so you have to look at him who basically was got blocked by one of his friends after them said they said i don't like your tweets you're just a re- you're just a bit racist and think i just don't want to follow them and he reposted this block saying this person has cancelled me i have never been so traumatized in my life and then everyone in england is like copy pasting this with like a, <laughs> a stupid block and um and i kind of think what ones i had i only had two which was sort of the react revolutionary communist group turned reactionary news outlet spiked which wasn't too fun and graham harman and i've never spoke to the man in my life but once he had some sort of post about Excel- hegel being cool and acceleration being so racism being shit and i uh i saw someone quote to you and i commented both are cool and then it gave me instant block <laughs> so,
0: <laughs> i mean accelerationism is one of those things where like I don't even think everybody who calls themselves an accelerationist means the same thing when they say oh, it. Oh, definitely not. So it's hard for me to even form like a, a coherent opinion on it when 90% of the people talking about it are just like nerds without actual pictures of themselves in their profile picture arguing over one sentence from Fang Numina or some mm-hmm. shit.
1: Oh, definitely. I mean, look, land's not cool. Uh, Mark Fisher, cool. I'm just going to put that out there. I'm not one of those guys. Um, <laughs> I don't care what anime Nick Land watches or what food he eats. Um, he I was just, posting about wa- getting talked into watching
2: Lane the other day, which I thought was yeah, that's kind of been amusing. the big
0: thing. I, I think <laughs> in like a anime profile picture, accelerationist circles, Lane yes. is like the big thing.
2: Yeah, it's actually I'm not that much of an anime person, but it's actually not bad. I saw several
0: episodes. Yeah, I've seen the first few. It looked good. It didn't look like anything, like, super
1: amazing. The soundtrack's good, I'll give it that.
0: I'm more of a a Ray Brassier guy myself, and (laughs) uh, we watch uh, Tangan Toppin Gurren Lagan. so...
1: (laughs) Uh, it's great noise position, right, Brasso? So I will give him that. <laughs> My
2: Graham Harmon story is that he wound up in a shit post. So I, I had one of those posts that's like, you know, okay, I'll bite. What the hell is what the hell is object oriented ontology? And I, like, <laughs> he actually showed up down like in the replies for just this <laughs> shit post. And it, you know, it's just one of those like little moments on Twitter where you just like, yes, this this is it.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's like um, a lot of of philosophy adjacent posters on twitter like their big day is when they finally get followed back by reza that's like that's like their that's it they've yeah, made it right. when reza finally follows them on twitter i need to uh, hit him up he he uh flaked
1: on me a couple of times uh, for an episode so notoriously bad answering his emails <laughs> yes yes great <right. laughs> unless he wants to come on at in which case he's actually brilliantly punctual <laughs> nice all right well uh I'm gonna have to send an email from your <laughs> from your account.
2: <laughs> to get back to the matter at hand here, we're today we're going to be looking at roughly the second quarter of the unique and its property, essentially everything from page eighty three to one sixty nine from the Wolfie Landstriker translation. Which, as we mentioned last time, is the more superior translation. Also, aesthetically, the cover looks way more badass than than the ego in its own.
0: Well, when I originally tried to read this book, I read the old Byington translation, and it was it sucked. <laughs> it was like unreadable. But I always appreciated the concepts that other people would like distill down for me. So it wasn't until I found out that this other translation was even out that I ever actually
1: sat down and read the thing for myself. The buying translation is so bad, even on his own admission. Like uh, there's, there's, there's there's a paper of, I think by Paul Karras called, about the connection between Sterner and, and Nietzsche, like on a historical level. Mm-hmm. And he and Byrne admits that yeah, I completely got the um, I completely got the title wrong. I basically translated the unique as ego every time it became too uncomfortable to fit in a sentence.
2: <laughs> yeah, which is a travesty too. Like that little bit, I think, really fucks up things because people get too wrapped up in the word ego
0: well cuz it's it's like there's a there's a vulgar kind of flattened understanding of what an ego is yeah. and that doesn't even come from the same place as this it's like a misappropriation right. of a psychoanalytic term mm-hmm. and then it, there's like it's it's almost the same thing that you run into with geist in hegel trying to give people an accurate idea of what spirit is supposed mm-hmm. to mean it's like it's a bit slippery
2: but for anyone who's following along just to sort of orient you so we're going to be looking starting out Section 1.2.3, The Hierarchy, and then moving forward to 1.3, The Free, and then the little subsections on political liberalism, social liberalism, humane liberalism, and the postscript. Now, I I think in terms of my reading, I really enjoyed the hierarchy portion quite a bit and even some of The Free, but as you move into the three critiques, then I kind of got a little bit, I was getting a little bit more bored than I was for the first, I think, quarter of the book,
1: (laughs) to be quite honest. These sections didn't excite me so much. I mean, I think we have got to think about when, but is writing for here? Yeah, is that he's writing for the same six or seven people, maybe even three or four people that he's seeing down the pub every week? <laughs> because you have got to think where well, these debates are all happening. They're happening, yeah, they're happening in like the Reichstag Zeitung and like various book reviews under anonymous names, but they're all going to the same bar. They're all going to the back room of Hippels on um, Friedrichstrasse in Berlin, and they're arguing it out. You can see it in the the Engels drawing, and mm-hmm. I think yeah, that the same point is just again and again that. Actually, no. you will just make you. You think you're escaping the spirit, but actually, you're doing the spirit this way. And you're doing this way. And you're doing it this way. And then...
0: <laughs> well, I think that is what's really illuminating about these sections. Is it's like he takes the undercurrents of the liberalism that he and everybody around him, like mm. uh, at least on the surface, disdain, and then he's like. Okay, if we're really going to break from liberalism, then I feel obliged to tell you like the ways that your ideologies that you're proposing are just reproducing facets of that same liberalist kind of, mm. it's like a pathology, almost, it's like he's trying to identify some, some kind of internalized, uh, pervasive, it's like a, it's a fixed idea is basically a pathology.
1: The bats mm. in the belfry, right?
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: It's a pathology that's built in. Yeah, I think it's going back to the, sharing the stuff, I was at Nietzsche there, on, on childhood, because the, the whole thing about liberalism is it's it's an education towards seeing the spirit as something inviolable and sacred. It almost feels a little bit like Oedipalization. You're yeah. caught within this triangle of, you know, uh, Holy Spirit, uh, Jesus, <laughs> Jesus, and um, the Father, and then you're not even in the triangle. You're just this lack, sort of circling in the middle that can at most partake in this but can never really get it back. Right. I'll read this I, this first quote that I pulled because I thought this was,
2: I don't know, one of my favorites and I think maybe a good way to start off and uh, be a jumping jumping off point for conversation. But who will dissolve the spirit into its nothing? He who by means of the spirit portrayed nature as the null, finite, ephemeral, he alone can also bring the spirit down to the same nullity. I can do it. Any one of you who prevails and creates a sovereign eye can do it. In a word, the egoist can do it.
1: The first key word I think we have to look at here is is dissolution. Mm-hmm. It's, it seems to be a little bit of an inversion of the uh, Hegelian motion of sublation where everything is just, it's, it's negated, but it's preserved and elevated up. And here's he's trying to dissolve a spirit into its nothing. And the spirit he's dissolving is the sort of spirit that he's In a way, he's in his formal education because he did go to to Hegel's lectures and he was sort of Hegelianly educated. And I think to bring it down into the finite in a way, maybe it's something that could even complete this. Because if you look at the nature of Hegelian infinity, the infinite is not meant to stand above the finite as this other world. If you look into Hegel's logic, it has to be brought down to earth and then sort of consumed, but also at the same time elevated. I, I think Stern is taking the more negative aspect of Hegelian infinity. And sort of turning it into this more radical thing through the most negative aspects of Hegel's version of, of freedom.
2: That very much sounds like the Christian trinity again, like Christ bringing the spirit down
1: mm. and manifesting it materially and being the manifestation of that. You know, Hegel's, as Hegel's, says like, I said, like the, the trinity is the best way to depict the, um, the, the real infinite for him. And I, I think yeah i don 't know if i don 't know if stern can escape this sort of trendy, or if he can, he can dissolve it into a most uh, vulgar kind of eth- not vulgar eth- well, eth-
0: isn 't that what sterner 's kind of trying to do is he 's mm. gesturing at like we're, what we 're really trying to do philosophically is get at the absolute bottom of something but mm. this it 's really through its own kind of self justifying self sustaining nature that these ideas of spirit really prop themselves up so it 's mm. almost like he he doesn't really have the tools of language that you need to demolish philosophy from philosophy. So he has to be a bit creative with it and, and f- get you to kind of read between the lines there. It's mm. kind of like the, the parallel
1: to, to Taoism where it's like the Tao that can be uttered is not the true Tao constant flow again i think when it comes to yeah the practice of naming something is to bring under a fixed kind of a fixed idea of that i mean i don't know if sterner would need to necessarily want to get rid of this all entirely but l- allow it to be consumed not to be essentializing
0: right yeah not to have mm-hmm. the i well he doesn't want the names of things to form a idealized version of them that stands mm-hmm. above them right like sterner is ardently anti-platonist he doesn't think there's a perfect form of a chair mm. anywhere. He just thinks that there are chairs.
2: He alone can bring the spirit down to the same level. I can do it in any one of you who prevails and creates as a sovereign I can do it in a word that ego is...
0: Yeah, so in the, in the end of that, it seems like Stirner's and I get this impression from a lot of his work, his main tactic is to take philosophical ownership of things in like a very mm-hmm. practical sense. Like anything that you come into contact with is imminently yours because it's entering your realm of influence. It's entering and it's interacting with you. So it's like, it's almost like a, you you can rule over your experience or you can let your experience rule over you and yes, there's, there's no like middle ground. there's mm. no mediated version of that
1: I mean, I think there is a room for mediation instead because I think it, the act of self-presupposing is a kind of mediation and I think the talk of the talk mm. of a human life, the talk of education and the talk of going beyond it I mean he, does, he doesn't completely break from the critical liberals as we'll, as we'll see later. He, he takes some of their points to sort of fuel his own power. I think that there right. is a mediation and I think it's dissolution. I don't know if how much of immediacy there is. I think it's, it's the immediacy maybe that would come after having come to one senses, you know, having become conscious. Right. So there's this quote I
2: thought was interesting. This actually almost reminded me of the, uh, of the kind of accelerationist idea of like of, of capitalism. And I think the way that capitalism almost effectively like in practice actually can operate almost as like this sort of curse, right. Because of the material force of ideology it can it's almost like this the kind of mind control um that you might think you know might encounter in like a comic book or sci-fi novel but it's like i don't know i think that's a good metaphor for how capitalism operates that you might not i think necessarily uh see it first or make that connection but like in essence what is it like it's the system that is like no one most people don't benefit from the system yet it perpetuates itself right and, right and how does it perpetuate itself through hierarchy of the mind
0: well yeah it's interesting because i think the common thinking especially during Stirner's time but you also see it now is that like a state assemblage uh exists to serve the people who live in the state or right. in the nation but mm-hmm. like really state assemblages are self self-perpetu- self-perpetuating assemblages that essentially just engage in capture all the right. time. So it's mm-hmm. almost like a little bit of a prefiguring of what uh, Deleuze would go on to formulate as his conception of the state.
1: It's def- it, also, it also reminds me a little bit of Althusser as well, because the, ideology, the function of ideology is to reproduce capitalism, not just to produce it. Mm-hmm. And the way people could reproduce this is through having this, these ideas, which are really you know, material practices that embody their supposed relation to the social order so the duty to be a good worker the duty to the state the duty to serve public office you know as you know in Kant's uses of reason
0: i don't know if it's in this piece but there's a, a phrase that sterner uses called taking police care of one another where there's like an an assumed ought like it's like you're stepping yeah. in and being like "Ah, oh, shouldn't you really ought to be doing something mm. that's more in line with you know the symbolic order or whatever like kind of version of, of society's uh, expectations you have conceptually.
1: Yeah. Because if if you, if you, someone else is breaking, is breaking any sort of break, you know, isn't acting sort of break with the rules, then they're defying the same spirit just taking possession over you. Right. So you think, okay, maybe you get, you'll get rewarded for this because <laughs> you're just being a, a good, a good citizen. You don't, you don't consciously think that for Scherner, but you know, he thinks that there's something there.
0: Yeah. Well, I think there's something interesting about the way Stirner really puts a lot of emphasis on the way people act unwittingly, Mm. Um, and that's not something that you really see be very common in a lot of analysis until the psychoanalytics kind of came around. I mean, it's certainly present in Hegel, and I think in a lot of ways Stirner is trying to tease it out of Hegel's, his own logic and his own reason and um, emphasize that element of it.
2: I think that's one of the more like, or one of the unexpected things I in interrogating Hegel is the sort of consci- exploration of consciousness and a lot of kind of prefiguring psychoanalytic, but also linguistics to like, mm-hmm. he somewhat does have like, you know, even McG- McGowan kind of says that he kind of prefigures, not to say but a, who am I thinking of, Cicero a little bit um, in some in some pieces. And I can forget the specifics of it. Let me go ahead and read this, this paragraph that kind of, <laughs> encountered this like idea of mind control. That's literally, to me, like the first image that, that came to my head when I read this. State, emperor, god, morality, order, etc., are such thoughts or spirits which are only for the mind. A mere living being, an animal, cares as little for them as a child. But the uncultured are actually nothing but children, and anyone who only dwells on his life's needs is indifferent to those spirits, but because he is also weak before them, he is subject to their power and is ruled by thoughts." This is the meaning of hierarchy. Hierarchy is the rule of thoughts, the rule of the spirit. We are hierarchical to the present day, put down by those who are backed up by thoughts. Thoughts are the sacred.
0: Yeah, I mean that's it's it's really strong, and I think it it's it really puts a point on the way that Stirner sees a lot of these reproductions of forms of control as essentially reproductions of religious faith, and like acting as a good citizen is considered to be acting in like a priestly way, or if right. it's more secular, like a schoolmasterly way.
1: Yeah, I, I really enjoyed this point. Um this part of the book but mainly because it, it harks back to me a lot of what sterner was doing in his own t- in his own life at this sort of time because he was a he was a school teacher himself mm-hmm. and i think a lot of the stuff about the hierarchy of thoughts is about sort of the lost potentials of, of education and particularly in my opinion hegelian education because if you wanted me to boil down to you what hegel's system is in the most basic possible terms it's a textbook it's an encyclopedia that's meant to explain the logic of everything, <laughs> how we <laughs> interact with nature, how consciousness came about, and then it also has some pretty unsavory things that were mainly driven in by the influence of evil Kantian anthropologists, but <laughs> Hegel, is, Hegel is condemned for that. I'm not going to defend him for that. But, uh, but yeah, the fact is that Hegel's system ends with philosophy, and it's meant to be this big reverence in thought coming to itself. There is no real practical implication for this. I mean, Hegel says himself he can't use anything practical for this. But what he's given you, really, as a textbook, as a course of education, it's, it's a subject-producing machine. Education is there to produce subjects. And what Stern is looking at and saying is that, again, you know, education has given you all of these masses of contradictions. If you go to Tom McGowan, he puts this quite clear, you know, the idea that every substance is also subject, that contradiction and self-division and self-differentiation is inherent to every substance and there is no pure substance above you or a pure authority and at the same time this is an incredibly conservative streak of hegel that um he, that stern is getting also the old hegelians are getting after hegel's death and it's there's no practical element to this. there's no emancipatory element to what was originally promised you know of the hegel of the phenomenology and the you know the hegel of, of the haitian revolution the hegel of the french revolution and i think just to clarify can i, can I read out a couple of quotes from oh, sterner's the Force principle of our education which yeah, is a, a text he did a little bit before this book yeah, go ahead. He says that, talking of the teachers, he says that do they consciously cultivate our predisposition to become creators or do they treat us only as creatures whose nature simply permits training where then will the spirit of opposition be strengthened in place of the, subs- of the subservience which has been cultivated until now or a will where will a creative person be educated instead of a learning one where does the teacher turn into a fellow worker where does he recognize knowledge as turning into will where does the free man count as a goal and not the merely educated one all of these, edu- all of these people are being educated into having reverence for thoughts and not consuming them, not using them. They are simply nothing before them, and yet their nothing is not creative nothing. And I think in this critique hierarchy, he's turning. He's giving the first intimations, really, of Marx's eleventh thesis on Feuerbach, which is not the point. It's not just to learn about the world. The point is to enjoy it and change it and you know, dissolve it within your own collective intercourse with each other, pun
0: intended. A lot of Marxists really only know Stirner from the common observation that it wasn't until Marx wrote his criticisms of Stirner that he turned his philosophy into something much more uh, rigorously material. Even if there were gaps in that from like a from an egoist perspective or whatever, like that influence was certainly there. And I think that is kind of the the overarching thing of what Stirner wants you to do is he, he he's trying to say like don't just don't just go chasing after grand universalizations of philosophical and, and national and social ideas mm-hmm. go and pursue that which is particular to you and enjoy the and 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 experience and navigate the particularity of of your experience.
1: Mm. I, I think you guys brought this up last time with the talk of Derrida's Spectres of Marx. You know, the question is, who is the who is the better student of Hegel? And there's, there's a sense that Schörner is pointing out <laughs> that Hegel sort of saying, you know, when, when he died, he supposedly said, but he didn't understand me. And Schörner was going, well, yes, that was you. Um, to be <laughs> and I think this takes, I mean, just to address as you know, an eleventh room with this text is the original quite unsettling sort of racial categorizations uh, that Stern is using at the beginning of this section, they're all just mocking the absolute nullity of of Hegel's, because these are the same categories that Hegel uses. Yes. In the philosophy of mind. And it's it's quite funny, given the younger Hegel said that if you made a judgment on someone based on their skull shape, you should have your skull caved in. (laughs) So I think we should all, in the spirit of Hegel, say that he should have had his skull caved in before he wrote the philosophy of mind. (laughs) What struck me about this quote perhaps
2: is a little bit different. Um, it was calling back to earlier in the text where Sterner was kind of almost going through this um, development of almost like kind of very similar to what uh, Lacan does in terms of like the construction of the subject over time. And and that's kind of what this harkened back to for me because he's talking about a mere living being an animal cares as little for them as a child when it comes to things like state emperor god morality etc so whenever you're first developing in the world as a as a being as a subject these things don't it's like that that scenario where kids say the darndest things right because they're they're less programmed into by ideology so that like the absurdity of the way that the world functions they spot the contradictions immediately that we're blind to you know what i mean right whether it be like you know what i mean the classic example is it's well, causation right you can kind of go on, but why, Dad? But why? But why? You know, right, I
0: mean? right. Well, and then in learning to navigate the world as we get older and older, we learn and uh, internalize more of its, let's say, charitably idiosyncrasies, right. and they start to seem normal to us. But the it's the fixed ideas. Yeah, the fixed idea. Well, they become commonplace. They 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 stop becoming something that we want to interrogate because they seem so every day. But when you're like three or four or five years old, you know, any you're ready to ask a question about anything. Yeah. Um. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I th- I think
2: even on through adolescence and like young adulthood, you're not so like you're just beginning to really like internalize your subjectivity. Like the subject is get, like it's getting built, is getting constructed over time, like a house right. in, in some regard, right? Through through experience, through um, encountering the world etc. So that's kind of like getting, it's getting solidified. Those spooks are like taking actual material form. And so then when you're a fully formed adult, like you're less, you have less, you're not able to recognize the sort of the frivolity, like the contingency of all those kind of, that like kind of list of almost like the totems to some degree Hmm. that you've set up for yourself.
1: The the spooks kind of immediate, they're immediate because they they are that which is given, they are given to you. Right, and it's like it reminds me a bit of Luke, Lukács talking about ideology, which is something that is immediate. Immediately, you don't, you can't see, you know, the capitalist social relation. It's, but it's just it's given. It's not given.
0: Yeah, well, ideology. Like you're a,
1: given certain social strata and social, social duties, I guess.
0: Well, they're given, and then once they're given and, and internalized, they become transparent. You operate through them without right. noticing the content of the biases or assumptions that you're then operating mm. through intuitively.
1: Actually, a little bit of the Invisibles, where the, um, the um, Invisible Church's man in MI 6 uh, the sir, talks about names, Does so basically reads out every letter of the alphabet and says, actually, this is the name of a demon we summon to limit the conceptual pattern of human thought. <laughs> <laughs> Great book. Wow. wow absolutely amazing how does this contrast to something
2: like very much out of my depth largely but how does sterner's i guess ontology compare to someone like like a Humean? you know what i mean like that kind of empiricist tabula rasa sort of idea could you maybe adam guide <laughs> like i mean is, this is, is something there a I've different thought articulation a or like
1: or yeah i'm kind of curious um so i i so when i was doing my my i did first my bachelor's dissertation on sterner like i the New translation was coming, and it was something I was wondering about this because Stirner did write a translation of the uh, The Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith. Oh, he did! <laughs> and oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> I, I, I was thinking that maybe God, I have to get a copy of that. Yeah, <laughs> I was thinking <laughs> that maybe um, he was in touch with the thinkers of the Scottish Enlightenment, but I've got no real evidence for where he would have found them. They weren't. I don't think Hume was significantly covered in. To an extent that he would have been massive on in Hegel's philosophy in lectures on the philosophy of history. The, the sorry, lectures on the history of philosophy. I always get too mixed up. So,
0: do you think like that the apparent similarities between somebody like Hume and somebody like Stirner are most likely a result of kind of just convergent co-evolution?
2: Thought?
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know how much because Hume doesn't leave any. Hume doesn't really leave much personal identity around. At most, he leaves it as he leaves as bundles of properties, but. I don't know how much they can be said to be dissolved in the same way. I, th- I think the relationship that the sterner subject has to f- the concept of form is less that it's c- a habit, but more that form is innately kind of plastic and self contradictory and has the capacity to always differentiate itself from anything yeah. that tries to capture it. Okay. Right. Yeah, I, I wouldn't. I, I put it more in the, in the sort of Hegelian lineage of, um, particularly like Catherine Malibu's reading of Hegel as, he- as plasticity oriented. Uh, subjectivity that comes out of the end of absolute knowledge. I, I wouldn't put him into Hume. I don't think I could build up much of a historical case for that, even though he most certainly knew who Hume was. Um, I think you could probably get it cashing out in a more Hegelian way, or even in a post-structuralist kind of deleuze way, as some of the people have put it out. I haven't read Deleuze's book on Hume, but that's definitely one that I'm I'm
2: curious to dive into, because I always liked Hume um, going back to like my philosophy 101 days. He was one of my favorite... Uh, fingers to encounter.
1: He's always a bit too, bit too. I don't know. Maybe this is like a legacy of English austerity for me. I know he's <laughs> Scottish, but he always he was too metaphysically austere. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know. It's just cause you can't see it. It's like,
0: mm-hmm. well, that's what's uh, exciting about Stirner right? Is that yeah. <laughs> even through a translation, he writes in this playful joking way that has a bunch of different layers to it, depending
1: on how ready you are to read sarcasm off of a page. Mm. If you're not ready to read Sterner as being sarcastic, or you're not knowing who he's talking about, and and these people are mainly either old Hegelian professors, Hegel himself, or people down the pub. You're going to take this very seriously, and you're going to think he is the most abhorrent, uh, domineering racist possible. I'm like, no, that was just like Hegel.
0: Well, and that's probably how, like, Stirner ended up being revered by so many people who would, like, thank him and Mm. Ayn Rand in the same dedication on the same book, is it's like, well, you don't, you read this Mm. without any historical or, or uh, contextual grounding. I
1: mean, There's it. even a publishing history to this because he was the, the roots of the right. That was one of the big editions uh, of the Ego and its own. It was, power. Mm-hmm. It was like a lit- literal edition that put him in league with these people. And I think, yeah, it's wheel, wheels in the head, let's say. I know, <laughs> I know it's not the worst translation, but wheels in the head.
2: I'm going to read a, another quote that I think we even have taken our discussion to, but I thought this was a, a good one um, that we can kind of dive into. But the two are always clashing with each other, the cultured against the uncultured and vice versa, and indeed attacking each other, not just in two people, but in one and the same person, because no cultured person is so cultured that he can't also find enjoyment in things and so be uncultured, and no uncultured person is completely thoughtless. With Hegel, it it finally comes to light what a longing for things even the most cultured person has and what disgust he harbors for every hollow theory. For him, actuality, the world of things, is supposed to conform completely to thought, and no concept is to be without reality. Mm. This gave Hegel's system the reputation of being the most subjective, as if in it thought and things celebrated their unification. But this was just thought's most extreme violence, its highest despotism, and absolute dictatorship, the triumph of the spirit, and with it, the triumph of philosophy. Hereafter, philosophy can achieve nothing higher, because its highest form is the omnipotence of the spirit, the almightiness of the mind.
0: Is he levying kind of a criticism of, against Hegel himself that he has created some kind of self-justifying system? Like the idea that Hegel, Hegel's epistemology became so good that he could actually make ontological claims that actually touched the real ontology of the world? or?
1: I mean, I hope not. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think in some sense which he did but I think this, this is it's referring to a sort of one the conservative Hegelians the right Hegelians which is also an aspect of Hegel himself but you know this idea that after Hegel died it was well he's already got the epistemology we just need to make sure everything follows this pattern of philosophy of right or of the logic right um, you know, deducing the pen or something. But you know, in the philosophy of right, Hegel himself says, "I can't say anything about the future here. I can't even deduce what certain laws are to be. I'm just saying here's how contradiction in the social sphere works." But this is definitely yeah the the very high mitis of of, a, of a Hegelianism that as Hegel did ended the system in philosophy. This is the end of the textbook. I was like, well, okay. After this, you meant to stand in awe of this new <laughs> subject that you've just been made. Oh, cool. So I'm I'm all these contradictions and plasticities Well, yes. Okay, cool. Um, what do I do now? Um, I don't know. Um, but these thoughts are cool, aren't they? And also, maybe God is real. We can't quite tell that with Hegel. Um, the mixture of conservatism in the reception, his need to be self-censoring, and obviously just some internal contradictions in the thought itself gives the fi- Hegel both this radicality and this conservatism and old Christianity, which even shines into the the split between the young and old Hegelians themselves. I st- I still think Scherner is tapping into a radical source of negativity that the, that the old Hegel couldn't quite recuperate from the young. It's kind of this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a heretic here and say line of flight, but... <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, in Schoenner's review of Bruno Bauer's book, which is called The Trumpet of the Last Judgment Against Hegel, the Atheist and Antichrist. I think that's the full title. Which he says, in which Bauer argues Hegel's an atheist. So he reviews it and then he says that, well, this, this system is what I've been using and even I can deconstruct it in this atheist way. I, I think there's a radical line of, of flight that uh, he's putting out here. That's not just bringing everything to the point of theory and just logicizing everything and deducing everything and making the spirit, you know, we're all looking up at how great spirit is to, uh, or giving us this world. It's like, no, this creative nothing is, is me for, has fought may take this from me, but I am, yeah, you know, I have these thoughts. I am the thing I'm the thing that takes these thoughts as my own and thinks them. And luckily this, this old man has taught me how to use these thoughts and I'm going to use <laughs> them to start a milk shop and then blow up the government. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Hell yeah. I think it's funny here too, like even when, again, another example of this quote here where like Stirner is using dialectics to attack it, to even sort of like attack or critique Hegel um, in this kind of, Cultured, uncultured dialectic, and and that contradiction between the two of them and, that he goes through, and he's saying, because no cultured person is so cultured that he can't also find enjoyment in things, and so be uncultured, and no uncultured person is completely thoughtless. I mean, that's just like textbook Hegelian contradiction, mm-hmm. Lacanian sort of contradiction, that kind of like logical trap that that Lacan sets sets up with contradiction.
0: Well, it's kind of interesting. I It's like, um, I think Stirner thought maybe Hegel wasn't being metaphilosophical enough and applying his own system to his own system, because there's the frequently quoted bit from the Philosophical Reactionaries where Stirner said, do you philosophers have actually have an inkling that you have been beaten with your own weapons? (laughs) Nothing but an inkling. What retort can you Hardy fellows make against it when I again dialectically demolish what you (laughs) have just dialectically put up?
1: (laughs) Got a whole phd proposal on that on that quote <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs>
2: uh, turning it that's like the guerrilla guerrilla dialectics. You take the <laughs> take the discarded dialectics of your enemy and you repurpose them and yeah, just you your just own dialectics it and
1: it to both sides, and then you just blow it up. Boom! Yeah, exactly. Jokes. That's well, it. It's, simple. It's, it's
0: almost like a situationist <laughs> kind of detournement thing, right? Yeah. It's like let's let's just turn it against itself. Like it doesn't matter what the initial premise of this this kind of piece of mimetic ideology is it can be repurposed it can
1: become mine i mean i think this is something that hegel is latent in hegel because when you get to the end of the so-called end of history when you get to the end of you know the phenomenology of spirit what you've sort of done is is you've understood you've got when you get to the absolute you sort of understand the ignorance that was pervading all the previous shapes of spirit beforehand and you think well now that i know now that I basically know what was wrong in every case, maybe I can repeat these social formations in like a sandbox way. It's like growing up. Mm-hmm. You know, eventually you learn from your mistakes and think, Oh, I didn't know this then, then and then. So I can now retry these. I can now I can now repeat these in a way that also includes their difference in a very creative way. Wink wink nudge nudge to lose. to <laughs> get shafted for that on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Even though I, I think I'm a fan of uh, Deleuze
2: and Guattari, I still for me I stand I still stand Lacan the, the most. He's my king. <laughs>
0: My I don't know. I I think that I think that. Uh, I think that- almost every, uh, like people talk a lot about how like, oh, d- uh, Deleuzians and, and Hegelians can never be reconciled. You know, mm. Deleuze is too Spinozist, too concerned with the, the monistic one and, and Hegel is concerned with the two. And it's like, why don't we just keep counting? Psychoanalysis is concerned with the three. Let's find out who's concerned with the four. Like,
1: <laughs> <I> <laughs> yeah. It could be Deleuze and Guattari because you know they said they, they're complaining against Freud is that he is too into the three.
2: Oh, that's true. It's like the double slit experiment. It's yeah, like you can view it's uh it's there's di- difference on one side and di- dialectics on the other side, it, but it's describing the same. Whether it's like just depends on how you observe. Whether the it's the a wave, says they're both the same thing, <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. That's beautiful. I forgot about that episode, actually. <laughs> I think this next quote goes, goes in. It's kind of a harping on that same point that we're just in about fixed, fixed ideas and, and the spooks. But I thought this one had an interesting – it's got a little bit of a sting for, for our Marxist friends. So I'll read this now. <laughs> Spiritual people have something they've planted in their head that is supposed to be realized. They have concepts of love, goodness, and the like which they would like to see actualized. Therefore, they want to build a kingdom of love on earth in which no one any longer acts from self-interest, but everyone acts from love. Love is supposed to rule. What they planted in their head, what one is supposed to call it, other than a fixed idea, indeed, it haunts their heads. The most oppressive phantasm is the human being. Just think of the proverb, the road to ruin is paved with good intentions. The intention to completely actualize humanity in oneself, to completely become human is of such a ruinous sort, such are the intentions to become good, noble, loving, etc. And then, skips down a bit, the human is indeed not a person, but an ideal a phantasm.
0: Well, I I like this section very much, because as I was going through my little reread of this to get ready, this section was the one that really made the biggest impression on me, because he goes on for paragraphs talking about how if you idealize the human being, the ideal of the human being, the, the, the essence of humanity that, it, that unites all human beings, in order to pursue the aims of that idealization, you have to destroy the lives and experiences of so many actual individual particular human beings along the way. So in in becoming subservient to the human being, you must turn around and dominate individuals, and, and you do so without... The own, your your conscious choice to do
1: so. You do it incidentally. I think stern's big uh, in, innovation here, which I think I don't think Foybar can ever really recover from, is to sort of posit this this dialectic between well this opposition between humanization and dehumanisation, and then dialectically to say that each one is inherently scri- inscribed into the other. And I, I think this has this has huge implications. To be honest, I mean, if you want to get rid of the concept of hum- <laughs> if you, want to, yeah, if you want to get rid of a uh, you know, dehumanization you just stop elevating certain things as human I think it even has con- you know, applications for uh, the animal liberation discourses because mm-hmm. when, you, when you when you create circumstances in which uh, if you take all humanization to be ideology dehumanization is just the inverse of that so when you dehumanize something you're just sort of comparing it to a humanized ideology right or, you know, and it, or if you dehumanize certain beings by making them into you know sub you know, subhuman animalistic persons uh, the beings like persons um, then at the same time you've elevated something else above the human and this is, this is uh, something that can be fixed, any, it's fixed but it can be changed any time according to the whims of power Right, um, you know this, this. sort of dialectic also works with uh, sort of Deleuze's concept of of sense from Nietzschean philosophy, where the sense is what the sense of the term is what uh, has gripped it and forced it into a certain meaning. And if you take this dialectic of humanization to dehumanization, with the right sense, you can essentially commit any atrocity you want if you have enough force to exert a dehumanizing sense on one on one group of beings and a humanizing sense on another.
0: Well, it's a, it's a bit like his. Um at some point in the section he he has a quick little critique of Proudhon where Proudhon says mm. uh, property is theft. And Stirner's like in that moment of saying that Proudhon was supposed to have destroyed the idea of property. But in mm. fact, Stirner takes criticism uh, of the 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 idea that theft is this inherently bad thing because it's like it's like saying that to to steal is to is, is not a human attribute. It's dehumanizing, and it's not moral or it's mm. not good or, or approaching totality to steal. Meanwhile, theft is simply a, a matter of necessity for many people. It's a, it's an it's an incredibly humanizing action. Quite mm. the opposite of dehumanizing.
2: Oh, interesting. That's nice. <laughs> I think the contradiction here is is really what's interesting. Um, it very much reminds me a little bit of of kind of of Kant. And um Kante' Sad, that kind of argument that like by with Asssad so much transgressing the moral that he like actually uphold, upholds that sort of more than anything like he's the most by transgressing the law to so such a degree. It's, uh, it's the most – that's the most reifying element
0: of upholding yeah. it. Mm. absolutely. Desaad is more controlled by the idea of, like, what's, what's right or what's proper or what's not transgressive than somebody who simply doesn't think about it, you know? It's like, mm. it's like the person who actively rebels against something is more controlled by it than the person who just stops thinking about it and it just doesn't let it be an influence on their life anymore.
2: Yeah, all the like so very, cultured- a very Sorry. good anarchist critique, right, I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Levy here, right? Yeah. Is that re- by resisting the state form, it's like you're the most responsible for <laughs> for its well, reification. You're the, you're the
0: most preoccupied mm. with the state form. You never shut up about what the state form is and does. And in a way, you're kind of closing off potentialities as you go yeah. along doing it, even though your intent is in the exact opposite direction.
2: Like you're sort of raising the state to mm. to this power of spirit
0: yeah you're deifying it essentially you're like you're turning it into a god that you want to kill instead of just something that can be
1: brushed away right this is weird is it because it, it kind of comes up a little bit in todd mcgowan's book emancipation after hegel in his, his chapter about resisting resistance because he thinks rebellion always substantializes that which it rebels against if you define yourself as a rebel and it's weird because in this sense you have Stirner talking about not particularly. yeah, Serna is not actually a rebel. He's an insurrectionary. He doesn't want to simply, you know, define himself against the state. He just wants to just sort of go around every day a transgression, every day a sort of a micro insurrection. He doesn't really care if it's if, it, if it's deified or not. It's like, oh, it's, am I rebelling? Well, I, I, I'm just ta- I'm just setting up this milk job. I'm just taking, I'm just taking this coke. You know, I'm, he, he's like, he, right. he, he wouldn't even wouldn't even face him. <laughs> it's like you know if you look in here no one any longer acts from self-interest but everyone acts from love it's like well i I, i'm not this love i mean i have love yeah i'm gonna act i'm gonna use my love and i'm gonna act this certain way because i i enjoy it but it's not from love it's from me (laughs) i also think it's interesting here too that there's a little bit of you get that sort of critique of
2: teleology and i think maybe that's a a go at hegel as far as the the of idealism, right? Yeah.
1: I mean, the actualization thing, I don't, there, are, there are many reasons of Hegel' actuality. I, I mean, actuality to me, so usually seems like, I mean, actualizing isn't the same as making something exist. Hegel thinks the existent is already existent. Actuality for him is usually too of the comprehending of it. See, so he's not. He's not going to say I mean, He's never said like we ought to realise this notion. That's not something he could ever say. Like, the notion is just already in action because everything's already you know, through with contradictions. This is more of a kind of um. Like more, I guess it's more of a Protestant, heaven on earth kind of thing, the kingdom of God. You know, uh, rather than being a transcendent earth above, it's the resurrection of the body and everyone's, you know, having a great time in, in New Jerusalem or something. It's, it's, very anti, it's very anti-Protestant, this.
0: Well, isn't that it? It's, it's like Protestants want heaven on earth, which is essentially like to be free of dialectical tension. It's like, mm. a, it's like a static unity that you aspire to and once you achieve it you never have to come down from it and I think in a lot of ways Stirner is is saying like look you're you're never going to get outside of of dialectical tensions and and Mm. contradiction and all that so just um it's it's a bit of it's a bit of like an absurdist kind of radical acceptance thing right it's like well Mm. I'm here I should just do what I want
1: to do from where I'm at yeah, no. The contradiction can be can be a good thing. You can contradict yourself in very enjoyable ways. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean you know, love is a is a very contradictory situation. I mean, it's this sort of future that's desired where all contradiction is resolved, and when Marxists say resolved, most of them mean you know completely dispelled, rather than you know used reproductive a productive sense. It's it's a complete repression of of the logical sort of material reality of life, and in that sense, you know. I, I'm inclined to agree sometimes that when some Marxists use contradiction, that it's in a very conservative sense, uh, where it's wanting to oppress contradiction, get rid of it for this substantial beyond on the other side of this contradictory hell roaring. And really, I I think Stirner puts contradiction into it from the very beginning, not just from his own Hegelian, Hegelian education, because the egoist is the being which is allowed to be contradictory. Right. I contradict myself so much. I, contra- you know, I contradict myself. That's what Whitman put it.
0: Well, and that's that's like um, you contradict yourself in ways you don't even realize, right? Mm. Because part of Stirner's whole thing is like, as creative nothings, we are not totally aware of ourselves. We we surprise ourselves. I surprise myself every day, and so. I think to act like a being that functions as, in many ways, an engine of contradiction could ever exist in a world unfettered by contradiction is just, like,
1: naive, really. So, you see, contradiction needs to be something that's just not repressed or displaced. Right. If you displace it, then it becomes either you're the substantial being that there's this contradiction coming from outside, or you've got, um, you know, you're you're, you're putting it into somewhere else where there's something coming into corrupting your purity. And I think, yeah, this, this has to be something that we live with in productive ways. Production is an incredibly productive force. Yeah, it's what produces both sides of, of any dialectic. It's just you can see if you maybe can reconfigure it in, in new and more emancipatory autonomous ways. And that's what Stern is trying to do. Yeah, Hegel leaves his... His um, philosophy of right in the, the sight of contradiction in the social sphere, really, it's, it's the monarch. And he thinks that's good because we need a sight of contradiction. And the monarch is so fantastically self-contradictory and stupid that we can all <laughs> see it. And they, you know, it's, it's not substantial. Substance is subject. Whereas Sterner says, you know, if it's the contradiction is the egoist. Why can't we just have – why can't I be the contradiction and why can't you be the contradiction?
0: So in a lot of ways, uh, Hegel's – defense of uh, monarchy is a lot like my defense of a lot of shitty b movies which is that they're <laughs> just
1: simply so bad that they're actually good yep it's it's the, it's the of, of political systems horseshoe theory of <laughs> film criticism is that what we're doing oh, no. now
2: <laughs> i think this next quote's um very interesting too and it kind of teases out a little bit of, of what we've been discussing so far for one thing, it's this quote, it gets, I think, very psych- psychoanalytic in terms of rationality, contra unconscious, the unconscious rather. And then Stirner does discuss a bit. We're getting a little bit of a, a tease of, as far as what the, of the, own, or the concept of oneness and the really important question if, if oneness is just an attempt at, at a mediation. How people have struggled and calculated to determine these dualistic essences. Idea followed upon idea, principle upon principle, system upon system, and none were able to hold down the contradiction of the worldly person, the so-called egoist, for long. Doesn't this prove that all those ideas were too powerless to take up my whole will into themselves and satisfy it? They were and remained hostile to me, even if the hostility lay concealed for a long time. Will it be like this with ownness? Is it also just an attempt at mediation? Every principle to which I turned, such as reason, I have always had to turn away from again. Or can I always be rational, setting everything up in my life according to reason? I can certainly strive for rationality. I can love it just as I can also love God and every other idea. I can be a philosopher, a lover of wisdom, as I love God. But what I love, what I strive for, is Only in my idea, my conception, my thoughts, it is my heart, it is in my head, it is in me like the heart, but it is not I, I am not it.
0: Yeah, that's so interesting, because it's like, it's like Stirner's argument about how, like, you can be named Ludwig, but Ludwig is not you. You can be like your heart. Like your your emotions are a function of you or, or they're emergent from you, but when when you isolate them and identify them and say that's me that's what I am, you're cutting off the majority of what of what you actually are it's like mm-hmm. um I think ownness for Stirner is kind of like uh it's a it's a r- recognition of the kind of the soupy unknowability of what actually bubbles up from within a human being, and, and seems in many cases to come from nowhere, from the lack,
1: yeah, from yeah from, yeah, from a gap, yeah. It's kind of, yeah, I mean, it's bit, I think what's useful here is also Sterner's turn to uh, the will, and I think if you go to Hegel's account of the will the will essentially starts off as this pure nothingness. Then it posits an object as something other to it and makes it, it makes the will that object, what it's trying to do. And every time it tries to do this, it ends up overcoming itself. Cause when it, when, it, when a willing is successful, it fixes its, it fixes itself from pure abstraction onto an object, onto a purpose, and then completely annihilates it. And this is the same. Yeah. When you try to point out, Oh, this is me. Well, every time you define yourself as this, you always have a good habit of either not living up to it or going beyond it. You always have a good habit of falling short of it. You always create, more difference than what you actually try to do right
0: well and even in the uh even in the act of identifying the thing that you are identifying as yourself you are creating a dualism between yourself mm. as the thing identifying it and it the thing being identified so mm. it's like that fundamental chasm of naming or even just um like, linguistic, like relation- yeah it's it's linguistic relationality um that has mm. like a just the slippage of the signifier yeah exactly ultimately. the signifier is 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 never completely the thing that it signifies otherwise it would no longer be the signifier
1: it would just be the thing mm. Yeah, sterner <laughs> is constantly at least attempting to evade capture That's why i <laughs> which, why i never liked the portrait of sterner because it this is this is a <laughs> capturous plot um, <laughs> well that's kind of interesting though because doesn't Captured it also by
0: representation it, it mm-hmm. illustrates that like the world that we live in is a bunch of like Whatever the available instance of something is to us. It's not a path of experiencing things as they are in themselves.
1: I think you can expect, I think, I think Sterner could experience things as they are in themselves, but in the very banal sense of there is no secret. Right. Yeah, I don't think there's any room for transcendentalism in Sterner, definitely. And I think, yes, yeah, definitely touches on the sort of slightly Humean sensibility that there is um, There is nothing but sort of the nominal, the, the lawless. But at the same time, I don't think Sterner could pro- probably... I don't think I could probably deal with the immediate Because it's not that he's trying to combat Mediation as such, he's trying to combat mediation That's trying to stop him from being a self-mediating Being, a self-positing Right The Self-positing is self-posting is a simple act of willing It's, um, you know, immediately you're nothing And then you go, well, mm, I don't care I'm going to, I want that thing Pos- I'm going to posit the difference between myself and that thing As my property me and my property and then subsume it within myself and that process of self-mediation is, is, is ownness.
0: so it's almost like his real gripe is with um artificially imposed mediation like a mediation mm. that is not really the mediation of the self because the mediation of the self happens whether you acknowledge it or not right mm. like self-mediation is this mostly transparent always happening mm. uh, constant in in the realm of experience
1: what he, seems to, what he seems to be advocating for is, um, I there's a galen concept that comes up in Zizek a lot called the vanishing mediator. The mediator doesn't stick around. Sort of the instantaneous okay. flash. And sorry to say for Shona that, that the best example of that apparently is Jesus Christ, but no. the, the, idea that, yeah, the media, <laughs> It's not like the unhappy consciousness section of the phenomenology when there's a priest that comes along and mediates between you and the absolute realm of thoughts and calls for sacrifices. So, like, no, I can be self-mediator. I can be my own vanishing mediator. Yeah, Stirner is going full, full Lutheran, <laughs> full direct relationship with the absolute and turns out it's also him. Well, that's interesting
0: is it's almost like, it's almost like the, the like epistemological claim that like you can't ever really actually know anything, right? We could just be, we could just be brains in a jar. And Stirner is almost saying, God, almost like a bit of a Cartesian thing here, which is like, well, even if that's true, I still have... A world of experience. And if what mm. you're saying, if, if that epistemological claim is true, then everything's self mediated anyway. So why shouldn't I return to self mediation as the primary? driving point of my, you know, ideology or philosophical mm. practice or, or whatever. Yeah, I mean,
1: Stern is definitely, he's, Stern is fucked in that situation. Cause if, if he wants autonomy, you're not going to get any autonomy in, in the people who are controlling your brain. I mean, maybe if he was conscious enough, <laughs> he could try and get some sort of insurrectionary code going through the wires. But yeah, I think he would just sort of relax in the, in the sensuous world before him and just keep consuming it.
2: Right. Is ownness just to cope for this m- <laughs> this attempt at mediation? Like is that do we have a definitive <laughs> position? I'm just curious what your thoughts oh, are. Is, Maybe you just think <laughs> you might have even just described that, but just to clarify words.
0: Well, it's uh it seems to me like it's an acknowledgement of the impossibility of really establishing a um a first principle of experience and then just accepting it like if this is if this is all within me then it's all within me and i'm going to turn it all for the purposes of my interests instead of being worried about what what somebody else's interests in framing you know my experience or controlling my experience might be mm. yes
1: it's definitely all about autonomy i don't know if it's, I, don't think it's a, I think the 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 postulating or the positing of spirits is definitely more of a cope it's like you know you can imagine the conservative agalians sort of turn to their more lutheran uh, state is a god. Uh, version of Hegel definitely as a kind of cope from the fact that uh, the sort of negativity was obviously coming for them in the end <laughs> right. They will eventually stop mediating themselves and be dropped back into the drop back into the void Sorry. <laughs> this next bit, I think uh, we touched on this in episode one, but um
2: I think this is one of the more interesting. This is a piece that or uh, an idea that McGowan also talks a lot about, and this is actually starts out with a quote from hegel's Elements of the philosophy of right: The actual is the rational and only the rational is the actual. So it has finally brought the spirit, reason to victory and everything is spirit because everything is rational. All nature, as well as even the most preposterous opinions of human beings contains reason because it all indeed must serve for the best, i.e. lead to the victory of reason.
0: This is a critique of the teleology of reason, right? He's saying like, there's no, there's not necessarily an ultimate culmination of rationality in the actual just because you're starting by pulling your rationality from
1: the actual. I, I disagree with Shedd a little bit here. This is obviously my partisan you know, going, <laughs> especially with McGowan on that. But yeah. okay. <laughs> I I can't, I mean the, the actual is more of a comprehension thing rather than, than the existence. Um, and plus, the ra- what is rational, what is reason really for Hegel is the faculty of, of as, a, as opposed to understanding the faculty that puts things on either side of an opposition, that creates oppositions. Okay, the reason is a faculty that can, rather than fleeing from contradiction as, as Kant does in the Antinomies, when he goes, you know, here's these two things we've put apart, they're both contradictory, and so you can't have it, no one's going to have it, um, we're going home. Uh, <laughs> uh, just assume that everything is right. Hegel introduces reason as the faculty that, not only his contradictions when it tries to go through these oppositions, but actually comprehends them as internal to either position and actually gets the heart of the matter. So I don't, I don't, I don't think you can have a victory of reason. But at the same time, especially in some of the lectures, late lectures of Hegel, I would admit, and especially and definitely in a conservative Hegelians, you do get this position of history advancing towards these kind of matters. Definitely, I mean, and in, the, and in this that sense, Stern is like he's got in the bollocks there. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, it's but, almost like um, what would you think of like? saying that this is really Stirner trying to say like, okay, you can have a victory of reason, but those victories of reason are ultimately all Pyrrhic mm-hmm. victories. Like they don't actually end in like a closing off of any kind of potentiality. They only lead to broader and more uh, detailed kind of questions, mm-hmm. like a, a furthering of that same contradiction that was present before anyway.
1: why well, don't, Hmm. I mean, I think the the, the response to be to victory of reason would be, well, that, that's great, but I don't know who this reason fellow is. But I would actually <laughs> like to be victorious. Um, that's that's you know, the victory of reason is is, is at least in my view like the comprehending of, of the contradictions of a time. But when you comprehend the, sort of the contradictory statuses of a time, you sort of understand where the interdependent elements are, and then you know which ones to blow up to go you know to blow up the other ones. I mean, you know, the the bourgeoisie proletariat dialectic. If the proletariat are the creating force in society, and they and you know the proletarianization of them and their activity is built into the creation of the bourgeoisie and who continues of the proletarianization of the proletariat, if you're the proletariat and you've got the creative agency and you understand that both positions are tied into the other, then all you've got to do is you know your goal is really abolition of the bourgeoisie, but also self-abolition. If you understand mm-hmm. the victory of your reason is understanding what needs to blow up, so that this an whole totality breaks right. apart. But instead, the victory of reason here is the very Christian reappropriation of it, at least in the very conservative Lutheran sense, where you know, everything must be made rational.
0: That's interesting. So it's like a it, it's like a um, trying to hold on to the. The tan- it's conservatism. It's You don't want anything to be destroyed in your mm-hmm. ideology. And Stirner is saying like the only path forward ideologically is to blow up things that, uh, so to speak, that uh, are inhibiting to that process. I don't know. Yeah.
1: I, it's a bit it's a practical. It's, it's practical contradictions. Right. It's like, well, if these things, if these things are all contradictory, then they're not actually as substantial. The substance is subject. So I'm just going to treat them as, as subjects. <laughs> Which is something as equally autonomous as me, but not overall over me.
0: Right. Okay.
1: That's how I read it. This is a yeah. Yeah. Niche, yeah. Well,
0: it's like a it's like a radical um, nominalism essentially.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I've, I've also heard normal. this translated as the real is rational and the rational is is real. And I don't know it's how much general. that changes the
1: the calculus. Hold up. let Wait. Me, you might be able to speak german up i don't <laughs> right. speak much german but if i i do a few words or like um, actualität or verklick i mean if it's verklick you know that's, that's more like real uh, but I, in later on in my translation of that text uh, hegel does go on to describe actuality as different from mere existence so i think it would still have a bit more conceptual bearing than than simply what we would take as typically the real okay the existence is just that which is external and out there. Actual is more something comprehended. Um, yeah, if, you, if, you, if you comprehend something in its concept, you realize how that concept has been actualized. You're looking retrospectively. Yeah. You know? Okay.
0: Mm. Interesting.
2: I have a hard time, I think, visualizing this notion,
1: this idea like the actual, rational, rational, actual. It's a, the, the actual is rational because it's, it's understandable by reason because it's full of contradictions <laughs> that sustain uh, the various dis- distinctions within it. And only the rational is the actual because contradictions are inherent to all being and there's nothing about them. And given where we're at this point of, you know, this philosophy of, we're, we're in the philosophy of right. So we're in the, ex- in the expansion pack of the third part of, <laughs> a few parts of the third part of the encyclopedia, lo- encyclopedia. We've already gone through the logic, so we've already, you know, we, we know that there are contradictions therefore, we're just sort of tracing them through. Contradiction, has there has to be contradiction for there to be reason, right? Well, reason is a faculty of, of understanding contradictions, so right. if something's rational, it's, it's contradictory. And, and Hale puts contradiction from the get-go. The gotcha. first contradiction is you know, pure being. Oh wait, I can't see anything It's nothing Okay right. it's, it's pure being And it's nothing And oh look We've got these two motions Going from one to the other Pure being to pure nothing Pure nothing to pure being What should we call that? Let's call that becoming And okay What should we call Okay Well oh, This becoming thing Is neither pure being Nor pure nothing Because it keeps going Between the two. Oh, what's right. that? We'll call that something And then blur And then it's yeah. Because if you,
0: if you lived in a, in a world without that motion between contradictions, there would be nothing to observe. Mm. Everything would just be one-to-one. Static, yeah. The thing it is, and it would just be completely static. It would be yeah. um, immutable. And, and yeah. we know experience isn't immutable because we don't experience it that way. Mm. There'll be no
1: difference. Right. It'll be identity, but it wouldn't be identity we'd even be able to perceive because we couldn't differentiate ourselves from right. identical things to make sense of them.
2: Right. Mm. Interesting. Totally. I love those little brain teasers, Hegel, that kind of hegel (laughs) Lacan contradiction that's always, like, twisting your mind, right? Oh, it's like heroin.
0: Yeah, well, I'd say it's it's that movement between things that oppose each other dialectically, the movement between the two ends of contradiction. It can really be, like, kind of mind-bending. Yeah. It's no wonder that, like... You know, Hegel is so well revered in philosophical circles, but outside of them, like yeah. hardly anybody knows who he fucking is. It's, it's just like it's a bit impenetrable.
1: It's He's just just walk out New Vegas. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's like we're so caught up in this kind of rationalist project that all of this gets it's it's very counterintuitive. I think once you're, you're so if you're so steep in that kind of positive, positive positivist logical rational project. It's interesting too, I think, here to like think about how this applies to, to like uh, to like Reza's what is it, intelligence and spirit. And mm. on the list for a while, I'll say because <laughs> so. he's kind of going in about like, and the, I think the the through line here is this notion of the actual and the rational, the rational is actual in terms of like a general how Reza discusses a general intelligence
1: mm. has some links with that, I think. Yes, it's the idea of applying sort of taking like Kant's programming for the condition of experience and stretching them out across like social like nodes. I think to make an AGI, I'm not quite sure. Yeah, but that's I think at least a decent
2: move towards what he's doing. I haven't read the whole book; I've just read the first chapter so far.
0: <laughs> I only know Reza from from Twitter, so y'all y'all are miles ahead of me.
2: <laughs> this might be somewhat interesting. It goes back to that notion of of resistance and. Not only resistance but i think the contradiction here and how the contradiction is constitutive of subjectivity but this philosophy itself christian philosophy still does not get rid of the rational and therefore still rails against the merely subjective against whims contingencies capriciousness etc it desires that the divine shall become visible in everything and all consciousness become a knowledge of the divine and the human beings see god
1: everywhere but God simply never is without the devil. Scherner is here identifying the rational with, with the real in the sort of very contemporary sense of the objective world. The objective world is rational, you know, it's rational. It's conceptually ordered and therefore has a kind of uh, Christian affection or divine sanction, which is definitely what you get in the conservative Hegelianism of uh, those professors who I names I don't know and who he was <laughs> obviously writing about as Feuerbach was. But there we go. Um, <laughs> I mean, the stuff about God never being about the devil—that's just you know it's dialectics, straight, isn't it? It's, right. Um, it's it, even in ab- absolute knowing, like uh, the chapters. Like, Hales he, he literally at that point saying the God and the, <laughs> uh, good and evil are kind of the, uh, basically the same, <laughs> but inverted principles. Like I can't remember the actual argument, but
0: yeah. Well, they don't have any. They don't have any meaning without the distinction from mm. one another, right? Um, so it's like where he says here, like, Christian philosophy still does not get rid of the rational and therefore still rails against the merely subjective against whims and contingencies and capriciousness. And to think about things as contingent really does offend people who have a very hierarchically ordered view of yes. the world i mean just look at the way that the alt-right kind of uh, intellectual dark web guys all rail against postmodernism without even knowing what it is because they they get a whiff of contingency and they they want to oh, like flee from guys. it immediately
2: so this next quote we're getting i think for we're kind of moving further in this kind of direction um mm. where we're getting a little bit of of some of the psychoanalytic elements but also like this critique of of Cartesian dualism and, and how that how that sort of works um, for Stirner. Cognition has its object in life. German thought seeks more than any other thought to reach the beginnings and the fountainheads of life and also and only sees life in cognition itself. Descartes' Cogito Ergo Sum has the meaning a person only lives when he thinks. Thinking life is called spiritual life. Only spirit lives. Its life is the true life. So just as in nature... Only the eternal laws, the spirit of reason of nature, are its true life. In the human being, as in nature, only thought lives. Everything else is dead. With the history of the spirit, it had to come to this abstraction, to the life of universalities or of the lifeless. Solely God, who is spirit, lives. Nothing lives but the ghost.
0: When you let your experience get subsumed into the experience of a fixed ideal or something that you place up above you as a God. It's like what you're really doing is rendering yourself passive and, mm. and handing your activity over to the activity of this phantasm.
1: Yeah. It's, it's, it's like, it's, it's yeah, it's very, um, sort of Calvinist, isn't it? It's like the idea of, uh, yes. you, you are the elect, the spirit sort of moves through you, you know, uh, you will not. You don't actually have free will. It's the eternal laws. So the spirit moves through you. It lives through you. And you know, as Hegel said, you know, the history is a slaughter bench, and but spirit lives through it. So who who is a slaughter bench for? Uh, everyone else. Uh, it's it's for us. Only God lives. Only God is born in a community every day and dies again within it. Because you know they worship God as if you're not know, in Catholic in Catholicism, the, the Eucharist is the God is present in the host, and yeah. You know, he lives, he comes to you in the bread you eat the bread, consumes it distributes much community, lives again
0: well, it, and isn't that like even outside of like all of this strictly philosophical stuff we're doing, like even within Christian theology that's a debate, right? It's like if if mm. if the spirit can become present in the host, then the host must be at some level cut off from the spirit and to what degree that separation of like absolute godliness from our mortal existence is like the basis for a lot of different splits within
1: christian tendencies yeah i mean the question of transubstantiation has pr- probably the theological question that has killed more people on this earth than any other but, <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah i mean, I mean sterner brings it up later when he says it, that you just take the communion wafer you just eat it and you're done with it it's your property you've dissolved it right and i think that's i think uh Hegel also has a, a letter. <laughs> to a, an education minister at some point, which is British referenced in Rebecca Carme's book, um, the, da- the Dash, with Frank Ruder. It's called The Other Side of Absolute Knowing, and it's, it's a reference to a le- what Hegel writes to this official, and he says something along the lines of, to worship the presence of the God in the host is equally to, wor- to worship the rat shit it will become later. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and then you see like the, the raw a flight that is shterner just sort of punching through into eagle's letters there
0: yeah it's interesting it's like um it's like a it's like a crushing of of these symbolisms right it's like um it's almost like calling them coping mechanisms it's like you only eat the wafer and drink the wine because you need a coping mechanism to make you feel less alienated from this this yeah. holy spirit but it's actually your alien tea from that holy spirit mm. that that even lets you pursue yes.
1: these aims in the first place you have to partake in the substance of god and take it into your own body to feel like you're substantial but guess what i've just come back from this guy hegel's lectures and substance is <laughs> subject you're all you're all completely spooked <laughs> no. There's, there's no sub. there's nothing substantial about god um if anything He's close, he's just as subjective as me. Right. Uh, he doesn't actually, he's a stale ghost. And you will not get substance from this. You only get further alienation and further misery from what you actually are, have been doing unconsciously the entire time, which is enjoying yourself or right. attempting to or to avoid pain.
0: Well, because it's like this, this placing of spirit outside of yourself that's something to be like, uh, to be strived towards and attained is like. Mm it's just a busy box, right? That distracts mm. you from just enjoy. It's, it's like a reflection of yourself that you don't recognize as a reflection of yourself that you feel
1: alien from. Hmm. It always makes me wonder if a Stirner would have been, because I've always, you've, you've seen like some people use Stirner and I use it in a sort of mystical sense. Mm-hmm. It always made me wonder if, if Sturna would have been a chaos magic guy, the you know, <laughs> yeah. <if> any invisibles, <laughs> you know even like for me, if you, sense, if you know, uh, if you read the, Introduction to Crowley's uh, Crowley's introduction to McGregor Mathers' translation of the, uh, the Key of Solomon. He says, "Well, these, these are just all parts of the human brain. Don't worry, they're not actually demons. Like you can imagine, like to be someone like, actually, I'd like to invoke this this spooky part of me, but I'm going to consume it later because it, it's nothing there. It's not actually, you know, it's not actually a, a substantial."
0: Well, it's like the two flavors of cynicism right it's like the one that's rejective like the the one that tries to turn towards falsifiability and and scientific Mm. programs and stuff Mm. and then it's the other one that says like even that makes no sense there is no alternative except to just pick symbolic orders that you like and do things with them and Mm. and make sure that you have mastery over them instead of them having mastery over you Mm. and it'd be hard i i It'd be hard for me to guess what kind of
1: in-person uh, cynic Stirner would be. Well, apparently he was just very quiet, uh, very meek, doesn't talk much. Although <laughs> although that's it. When, when his biographer went to go speak to um, his wife, Marie Dan- Denhart, who is the book is dedicated to, she says, uh, I never loved him. I'm not speaking to you about him. Go huh? away. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> Looking into Stirner's life is like it was
0: a comedy of errors, right? It was like a it was like a sitcom. It was like a TV show in a lot of ways. Like Killed the, by a murder hornet. That yeah, that was the book. <laughs> this quote for me,
2: I think maybe it's my um, Southern Baptist rearing <laughs> is uh, is interesting. So I even actually kind of posted along these lines about this um, like Christian morality, Christian idealism being. Um, like it's the perfect ideology for slavery in in the context of like Nietzsche's slave morality, in a sense, because it's saying whatever your specific life troubles or like struggles or or whatever, those are irrelevant to your eternal spirit. It's bringing spirit above experience above the the real or like the material experience of life, and elevating that beyond beyond you so yeah it sort of very much prepares you to be like oh well whatever happens materially is irrelevant only this sort of spiritual idea of me that is eternal is important and therefore whatever happens materially is is less important and i should just what i should just be a subject
0: (laughs) you know what i mean right well it's like um a lot of churches will tell you like yes like respect your boss and respect your family and everything but remember you are really only subservient to god and that essentially just means that like whatever happens to you remember that there's this this guy that you can't access who is your real real reason for things and so it gives you this kind of empty shape to mm. cling to that doesn't have to be filled with anything because to fill it with something would make it tangible and would dispel its illusion
1: right yeah, render unto Caesars what is Caesar's. But actually, right. you know, it doesn't. It's, it's it's insubstantial, in a sense. I mean, in reality, it, it's not actually substantial. Yes, Schjerner would agree with them on that. But they've just moved the substance somewhere else, right? And so sort of the, the sort of the, the liberals are, are bringing the substance down to earth in the form of you know divine the rationality, state, yeah. di- divine rationality, divine society, divine humanity. This is pretty good too. This is also go, going
2: on in this kind of religious kit. Even if people outsmarted God and the devil in their former crass actuality, it was just to devour greater attention to their concepts. They are rid of the evil one, evil remains. People felt few reservations about revolting against the existing state or overturning existing laws once they had, had decided to no longer let what ex- exists and it's tangible impose itself on them, but to sin against the concept of the state, to not submit to the concept of law, who would have dared that? So one remained a state citizen, a law abiding, loyal person. Indeed, one seemed to himself
1: only to be so much more law abiding. So there's a law abiding gun owner there. So <laughs> there's no problem really with turning with the guns on, on the government, but it make sure that they are firmly obeying the law and firmly defending their state and their so called freedom when they're doing so. <laughs>
0: Right. Well, it's, um, it's kind of the same cognitive dissonance that gets you somebody who has like bl- a thin blue line sticker mm-hmm. and a, uh, a Gadsden flag on the back of the same truck. And it's like, well, who do you think is going to be stepping on that snake? you know? So yeah, it's kind of interesting. It's just the internalized thing, right? It's like, oh, well, I don't do anything wrong. Like I'm a good citizen. I'm an upstanding, a moral citizen. I'm a Ned Flanders, you know? And like, it's so hard to fight against people who position themselves as good in that sense, because by the standards of society, they become beyond reproach, but it's not like their actions are now all good and only affect people in good ways right like you can get rid of the evil one and he has that in double capitalization there that's like a signifier you can get rid of the signifier of evil but there are still going to be evil things happening in your community
1: it's 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 it's, 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 it's very structuralist the it's, it's a theological structuralism i guess if you're doing mm-hmm. and I'm talking about the theology of, of the spook but this is I mean, tell Marx does that. He talks about fetishism as having a sort of theological property to it. And it's a really existing structural one, you know, backed up by material practices. Sometimes you really wonder where Stern and Marx really disagreed. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, maybe it's like, it, isn't it just like another wave particle phenomenon thing where it's like they were just saying things in such different ways mm. uh, or from such different perspectives that it was hard for them to agree. Although I don't know. I think there are some real fundamental disagreements between, Stirner and Marx. I think Marx is profoundly teleological, and Stirner is profoundly yeah. anti-teleological.
1: Yeah. Uh, Marx turns Hegel on his head by making dialectic a predictive mechanism. Which right. Is something that uh, I don't think... Uh, Stirner turns it. into a weapon. Uh, he <laughs> has no He has no real uh, concept of what's going to happen. He doesn't actually care that much. But I think. Right. You know, I mean, a great book on Stirner, All Things and Nothing to me, ha- makes a pretty good argument about uh, sort of Stirner being uh, an FPS Marx the first person perspective of the communist revolutionary yes <laughs> yeah oh, that's good that's really good that's, uh, I like a, that really- a lot
2: them and themselves is a u- interesting dialectical kind of conversation
0: mm. right well it's like um a lot of people ask me they're like cuz you know a lot of my friends are marxists or other types of anarchists and they're like what, kind, what if you had to break it down for me in basic terms What's the value of reading Stirner or or knowing things about Stirner's thought? And to me, it's like most of the philosophers and theoreticians and 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 things that you will encounter if you're coming up against coming up into philosophy from a Marxist perspective are going to be trying to make universal claims right. uh, and, and claims about grand patterns of history. And I think that what Stirner does a really good job of doing is going the completely other way and being like, well, what does this mean for me? And in saying me, he's also asking you, what does this mean for you? The individual, mm. the little, the little kind of somehow distinguishable node of, of creative nothing that, or an instance that, that you are in this, in this mm. so-called grand scheme of things.
2: This next quote goes, this actually really kind of clarifies going back to the kind of, that question of that notion of the actual being rational and really like this, here was our answer. I think right here in this quote, therefore, the Lutheran Hegel he explains this in some place or other, he will remain a Lutheran succeeded in the complete realization of the concept in everything reason in everything reason, IE the Holy spirit is in everything or the actual is rational, which is to say that the actual is in fact everything. Therefore in each thing, for example, the truth can be detected in each lie.
1: There is no absolute lie, no absolute evil, and the like. In the, the lack of absolutism, yeah, I definitely checks out in Hegel in a sense that absolute in a sense of pure. There right. is no purity. Everything is always in in, 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 um, inter- interdependent on its other uh, in dialectical relationship. Yeah, this is definitely the, the the sort of reading of Hegel you would get from, say, the introductory lectures on yeah. history where everything is rational. or, or And then you get the sort of Christian it's weird saying millenarianism because it's 1844 but <laughs> yeah you know, everything will become rational and there is a quote that's sometimes attributed to hegel when uh, a student of his or a ta asks him like what what can you mean about this quote the actual is is rational and then he's, hegel apparently may have said um what is actual? what is rational sorry what's actual should become rational or, or something of the sort. So yeah, this could be sort of the, dom- the dominion of the concept spreading into all aspects of life and then reifying what is already objective or in the objective world as therefore good, which is, it, it reminds me of part of Hegel's philosophy right in the introduction where he says um, he sort of denounces the principle which comes a lot when you think about rationality of, a, of an objectivity or, a, or of a state, which sort of gives the idea that if, if God gives man an office, he also gives him brains. And that's not the case, you know? <laughs> The true
2: human being is the nation, but the
1: individual is always an egoist.
2: Therefore, cast off your individuality or separation in which egoistic inequality and discord dwell. Devote yourself entirely to the true human being, the nation, or the state. Then you will count as a human being and have all that is human beings. The state, the true human being, will entitle you to all that belongs to it and give you human rights. The human being gives you its rights. Such is the speech of the bourgeoisie
0: yeah and this is a really this is a really smart point isn't it it's like i don't need human rights i need my rights right and Mm -hmm. and you need your rights and they need their rights like it's not like there's this one totalizing thing that we can all be granted and you should be able to tell when it's phrased that way that intentionally or not it's implicitly a lie And this is a point of contention, like when you explain Stirner's attack on the idea of human rights or like totalizing universal rights, people will say, well, that means you're just saying you don't want to give anybody rights and we should just let people exploit each other. And it's like, no, it's more like saying everybody should go after their rights. And, you know, as much as we, we can help each other, but ultimately we are responsible for you it's like you have to fight to accrue rights you know it's 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 a very practical way of addressing um of of what you have you know what you have a right to instead of tying it to this this false promise of a universal right that you can partake
1: in and the person who sort of says that you know yeah, you just want people to be exploited. But I say, yeah, what they say is, oh, you don't want human rights. Oh, that means you must want human rights violations. I'm like, no <laughs> know, see, Stirner has already preempted this because he's, he's talking about the fact that dehumanization and humanization are dialectically, or is intertwined with each other? They're speculatively mm-hmm. speaking, they're, they're the same. So if they say that, you're going, no, no, I just want to, sh- no, I'm showing that this concept of humanity actually produces these because you know, but when you've got human rights, then you've got sort of the labor of living up to them. And therefore, mm-hmm. you've got, You've got, you know, if you've got, you've got the inhuman. You've got that which can be punished and, disp- and, you know, and disparaged and exploited for being you know, uninhuman. So it's like, you know, if someone says, you know, oh, I want human rights, so you want, it, so you want things that are human to not have rights. Right. Well,
0: well, it's like almost like a, so many things that we call dehumanizing, uh, you know, poverty or discrimination or or whatever, are. Profoundly human things, like those are things that really only affect humans, right? So it's like you mm. have to be a human to be dehumanized. And it's in your supposedly dehumanizing activities or, or conditions that, that really make you human. Mm. Uh, or or it's, like-
2: the, it's the gap between the idea of human and the actual unique
0: that gap is- Becoming human? I don't know. <laughs> becoming inhuman? Something like that.
1: I mean, yeah, becoming human is definitely, no, it's definitely sort of the, the act of being spooked, you could say, is the act of becoming human, but it's yes, a not- right. human standpoint. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because you're never able to reach your, there's the, always gonna be the
2: gap between mm. the idea, the concept of human, the idea of human, and the actual implementation of your unique or your ownness. Mm there's always that separation or that gap that you can't recuperate and that is the that's the alienation as well like it's not only the alienation of like your of your labor in the capitalist system, but it's the alienation of the self from itself. Yeah, well, and it's the
0: reason a lot of people say like, oh, if I had a lot of money, if I ever won the lotto, I would just sit back. I wouldn't do (laughs) anything. I would never. And it's like, no, you wouldn't. (laughs) You would still have things that you felt like you needed to live up to and and keep up to. Like there's a reason that already rich and powerful people are some of the most busy people in the world. It doesn't mean Mm. I think what they're doing is worthwhile. It just means that like I recognize that they spend, a lot of time and energy doing it and it just goes to show that like i think sterner wants you to confront that that liminal space between humanity and dehumanization and be comfortable in it wherever you're being tossed around in it or like learn to Mm. ignore it because it's like if you try and struggle within it you're just going to keep getting bounced between the two poles anyway
2: this i thought was just good in the sense of the way it kind of like deconstructs you might could say the, like the alt-right or the conservative movement today, like they value the idea above. Yeah. That's their thing is the obsession with the ideal as opposed to the actual implementation of itself. Mm -hmm. But if the deserving count as the free, because of what does the comfortable bourgeois loyal official lack of that freedom, which is his heart desires, then servants are the free. The obedient servant is the free man. What a load of nonsense. What's the excuse that the you hear from like the right wing the right wing side of the argument when it comes to protesters getting or like even just people getting arrested and, and killed while, while in custody with the cops? it's like oh you shouldn't you shouldn't have transgressed this idea. the fact right. that you have transgressed this specific idea that we hold above your specific like your unique is like yes they value i mean that's just a great example of that like contradiction of of like the reverse i don't know the difference between materialism and idealism particularly what? i think in christianity or christian like metaphysics which is so much so like undergirds all of reality <laughs> in the United States in particular.
0: There's a fetishization of that subservience. It's like, um, it's like people will say like, oh, you don't have to support the war, but you have to support the troops. Yeah. And it's like, why? And it's like, because they're good soldiers, because they signed up to do their duty. And I'm like, well, if their duty is fucked up, then I don't think they should be doing it. But people have that thing, you know, it's the same with the president. They'll tell you, like, you don't have to respect the man, but I still have respect for the office, office of the president. Yeah. The why? idea
2: of the president. You yeah. hold it above yourself and enthrall to it. Yeah. Yeah. I disagree with what you say. But I would fight to death for your right to say it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh... <laughs> Missing the forest, literally missing the forest for the trees. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's with so many systems is like they're reified by like, oh, oh just because this thing exists, then it must be rational and it must be, you know what I mean? Well, it's a,
0: it's a, it's a secular religion, right? It's a religion mm. of duty or of patriotism yes, or of right. nationality or, or exactly. whatever. Um, And that's exactly what Stirner accuses Feuerbach of doing in the essence of Christianity is just replacing God with a capital G with humanity with a capital A.
2: With the time of the bourgeoisie, that of liberalism begins. People want to see the rational, the timely, established everywhere, the following definition of liberalism which is supposed to be said in its honor, describes it perfectly. Liberalism is nothing other than rational knowledge applied to our current conditions. Its goal is a rational order, of moral behavior, a limited freedom, not anarchy, lawlessness, ownness. But if reason rules, then the person is defeated. If the welfare state is the end, then war is sanctified means. If justice is the state's end, murder is sanctified means. And it's called by its sacred name, execution. The sacred state makes sacred everything that's useful to it. The individual freedom over which bourgeois liberalism keeps a jealous watch does not at all mean a completely free self-determination through which actions become completely mine, but independence from persons. In the bourgeois state, there are only free people who are forced into thousands of things, for example, into deference, into a confession of faith and the like. But what does it matter? It's only the state, the
1: law, not any human being, that forces them. I would be quite uh, horrified now because, yeah, I don't, I don't know if you read the papers, but it kind of seems like these people don't have to be forced into deference. It's kind of more like they just like it.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's um, that's like the whole issue that I really take with the Democrats here in the United States is that like. They love positioning themselves as the reasonable liberals who will listen to both sides. And like, that's the real freedom of intellect. That's the real freedom of democracy is listening to the powerful and the not powerful and then coming up with some kind of bullshit compromise that doesn't work. So it's like, you don't even have to... And like, I I see it in my coworkers and I see it in people out in the street too. People will be like, well, you know, I don't like the system, but uh, we all got to pull through together so we can keep a sense of normalcy, right? So we can keep this and that. And it's like, why? You know, shouldn't your sense of normalcy already have been dispelled by now, you know? But that grip that it has on people is really strong. And like, we were having a discussion about this in the BP Bledis Discord the other day where people were arguing over whether this kind of social pathology it can supersede material conditions and whether that's an overdetermination of the dialectic or whatever and i was just like pathology is a material condition yes. it has material inc- implications and it comes from a material place
2: i mean is that not the material force of ideology itself that i was going of talking mm-hmm. about and, and like right. that kind of vision of like if you like I said, for all intents and purposes, capitalism it is like a curse. It is a demon that rules over us. It has no – like there's no corporality to it really, but it's – through ideology, it becomes material. I don't know. I don't understand <laughs> quite that – how that movement works exactly in like the Hegelian system. But I don't I know. Mean, that idea borrowed from kind of like an accelerationist strain of thought I don't know, has always been very interesting to
1: me. Hegel doesn't have much of a time to really get into the niche of capitalism. He does have some sort of critique of it, which I don't really know much about. But when Sterner's talking about persons, separation from persons here, Hegel does have something quite a lot to talk about this, because in the section of phenomenology of spirit titled Culture, he's describing a world in which the subject is constrained and limited to being defined by its legal status as a person in relation to how much property it has economically. And this is an incredibly alienating thing because they're defined by a pure contingency. They're defined right. by sort of yes. economic oh, capriciousness. So good. And, and for this reason, in labouring throughout the world, it tries to create more meaning for itself by give by sort of you know, thinking, oh, this this should be very meaningful. Okay, what's what? Maybe maybe the world does have meaning. We think of a world where there's meaning, and suddenly you've got. Christianity coming up everywhere. <laughs> so I, I, I think is a repeat in, in, you could read as repeating this dialectic of being stuck within the liberal world of, of personhood and trying to think that this economic state of capriciousness is something that would give rise to uh, a meaning to the state which is beyond it and beyond you. A world of faith in the state's rationality. It's a repetition of the same state that Hegel diagnoses as Rome that follows doesn't come, really come to end until the French Revolution. And in a sense here, sort of after the Roman Empire has fallen after the revolution, and of course he goes after revolutionaries too here, all they have done is reproduce the state of Rome, the state of law, the state of personhood, the state of being attached to, uh, you know, titles of office and abilities and all under the same economic, arbitrary circumstances of property. It's not that Schoenner wants there to be necessity. It's just that he wants them to stop calling it necessity. Right. But it
2: isn't. And I think going on to that where he says, uh, as much as it has improved, as strongly as the reflective as reflective progress may be, may be held to, there is always a new master set up in the old one's place, and the overthrow is a reconstruction, which of course brings to mind the famous Lacan quote about revolutionaries, what they uh, really desiring a new a new master and and getting one ultimately, which I think is a is a warning. Bell, or what have you for all revolutionaries to consider
0: yeah well i mean if if your revolutionary program has something that you have even inadvertently placed into the 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 lacking space that you in your in your personal life that you lost when you gave up whatever faith you were raised on, then I think that's going to cause problems, you know. And I, I don't even know if that's necessarily what Stirner is referring to every time, but that's, in, that's the way I see it kind of played out um, in the modern days. Like a lot of people will grow up and they'll be like, oh, yeah, you know, I kind of outgrew the church that I was raised in. They were a little crazy. And then they'll have some like set of beliefs or set of mm. kind of underpinning beliefs that they have that same level of like almost – yeah. Gnostic fervor for right. it. It's like I just know this to be true. And, you know, if you're Stirner, that's going to take the form of a reproduction of Christianity. Um, but I think it can happen, you know, regardless of, of what religious form um you were raised on.
2: Hmm. Or even in Marxism, like this eschatological notion of, oh well, once after the revolution, you know, that we're we're merging, we're moving towards like this perfect Right. perfection of humanity.
0: Or even like in the idea that you can set up a transitional phase uh, of socialism from capitalism to communism. It's like, you're almost saying like, we're going to have a revolution to establish socialism. And then within socialism, we're going to have to have these kind of liberal reforms that graduate towards communism. And it's like, it's almost like there's instead of that, like really, what you need is is subsequent revolutions or like a scattered, you know, insurrections or, or I guess it could be conceived right. of a couple of different ways.
2: I mean, getting into the without getting into the weeds of like, um, I guess how dialectics function or like how class evolves
1: under socialism. Um, I mean, everyone, that's, a, <laughs> that's it's an incredibly a huge hairy, yeah, hairy topic. Great. Yeah, <laughs> dialectics is usually usually used by a lot of people to mean there's more than one of something, and they exist at the same time. It, it's not it's not used very well. <laughs> the class character, it's like between this and that nation. It's usually used to mean international relations. It's 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 not a very good use of dialectics. Um,
0: well, that's the thing. Like, I think most people still think that Hegel's uh, dialectics is uh, a hypothesis antithesis synthesis in, instead yeah. of like a unity of of opposites. There's just, there's so many, there are so many misunderstandings about um, Hegel out there, yeah.
1: It leads to such a an, an awful middle way fallacy. Um, it's usually, you know, mm-hmm. It says that there's a, to always show the absurdity of, of that reading, I always use a joke for this, I think Zizek uses from uh, about Stalin. He says, you know, they're having a debate in the commenter one day about, okay, should there be money or not, in the socialist paradise. Okay, so you've got the left faction with Trotsky saying, hmm, "Uh, we definitely shouldn't have money. It's just a bourgeois commodity form that has a power that is quite theological and fetishistic. And then on the other side, you've got uh, Bakunin on the right side saying, well, no, we still need money to regulate distribution of socialist produced goods. And then Comrade Stalin comes in, always the great dialectician, and says, (laughs) "Comrades, we have a thesis here, antithesis, the truly the resolution here relies in a synthesis of these opposites we will have money we will have we will not have money some <laughs> people will have it some won't
2: <laughs> oh man that's hilarious a nice like king solomon sort of approach yeah there. yeah just oh, the cut, dialectic the,
0: enough. cut the baby <laughs> yeah just slice right through the gordian knot why exactly. not exactly yeah i love a, a good fictian synthesis i think this is pretty interesting let's see
2: the state pays well so its good bourgeois citizens the possessors can pay broadly without danger through good pay it secures for itself its servants from which it forms a protecting power a police to the police belong soldiers officials of all kinds i.e. of justice of education etc in short the whole machinery of the state for the good bourgeois citizens and the good bourgeois citizens gladly pay high taxes to it in order to pay so much lower wages to their workers Ooh. <laughs> That's so good and so relevant now. Um, Let me read this other section as well. But though the persons have become equal under liberalism, under the law, their possessions still haven't. And the poor person still needs the rich person. The rich person still needs the poor person. The former needs the rich person's money. And the latter needs the poor person's work. So no one needs the other as a person, but rather he needs him as a giver, thus as one who has something to give, a holder, or possessor. So, what he has makes the man, and in having or possessions, people,
1: people are not equal. So, this is, the, this is the, the, the repetition of Rome, which has a slightly different undercurrent, because here we have the, or well, Rome or medieval Europe, because here under capitalism, each, each one is a giver to the other because one side has nothing. The proletariat has nothing. They have no feudal land, they have no means of production. Each one is a, is a giver to the other. And it becomes, yeah, the process of giving it. There's sort of a philanthropic element here, for example, the giving of arms, the giving of charity, and it's the giving of labor on the other side. Right. But also sort of a solidarity that could build between different givers. Um, and I think this builds in, this, this will naturally produce for Syriana the idea of welfare out of the disparity that's been created between these two giving factions. And that's what's going to, as we'll see, take the next form of the substantive uh, ideal, the you know, spook prime Uh, as we we move into social liberalism yeah
0: well in a way it's like a it's a critique of the social contract right Mm -hmm. it's like um it's saying like you know by believing in this abstracted idea that like oh we provide our labor and then they pay us for it and everything is kind of has a, a level of abstract equality to it because right. of this circuitous route of of distribution of goods and labor and everything that really just obfuscates the fact that you know the the proletarian class is getting the absolute uh raw end of the deal but they can believe in this social contract thing they could be like oh i'm part of such and such society german society english society american mm-hmm. society and that can be their their source of reconciliation for that glaring material disparity right in their face
2: and since they value the value is in the the idea and not the material as well like that Mm -hmm. like it's it's more important to be a good citizen than it is like that's the value not your own
0: well it's like um it's like when people ask me, they're like, oh, if you like Stirner so well, then how can you be a communist? Shouldn't you just be in it for yourself? Shouldn't you just be the most advanced capitalist of all time? And it's like, well, no, because like what I would really like, you know, what I want for myself is to live in a, in a world uninhibited uh, where, where, where the people around me don't actually have the Mm. economic hurdles that they need to, to jump over so that they can like have time off of work to spend time with me or contribute to their own projects or communal projects. Like I'd Mm. like to see those kinds of things flourish. And it's like, you know, I just don't believe that there's some kind of system that we need to preserve or that I need to participate in to make that happen. I think that's an incredibly um, it's just a perverse way to, to, Go about trying to realize yourself or to actualize yourself.
1: And it's, it's definitely also an argument for a sense of autonomy as well. Because if, if you're in it for yourself, yes. But if I'm going to be going in it for myself and be now this rich disaster capitalist, so all I'm doing really is letting capitalist social relations dominate right. what I'm doing, be, exactly. As if there's something substantial outside of me. Well, really, to be autonomous, I need to be. I need to have the. I need to sort of have the sort of the sense of myself to not uh, let myself be overcome by these kinds of. Desires that substantialize the other rather than just taking it all in its stride. And at the same time, if I'm, if I'm, if there's something out there that's dominating other people, it, it really, I'm not that free. There's like a lot of solidarity to right. the, the stern right concept of individuality because really, if other people, even if other people like my property, or like, we're all, even if I'm, i, I can not have an intercourse with someone who is not also unique or not also, in a sense, my own. Mm-hmm. My autonomy is incredibly tied up with them. Because if, if they're alienated from me, they originated from themselves, I can't really I can't really interact with them. Right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. An injury to one is an injury to all to, to, through the most, you know, uh, horrible and using of books, at least in terms of its <laughs> prose. <laughs> I think
2: what's interesting too here is like pointing out this, um, really this essential contradiction within liberalism of this, like the equivalence before the law and equivalence in possession. And so like, in, in an abstracted sense, under liberalism, the poor person is is equal to the rich, but like in the specific instance, that is obviously not not the case, right? Like, and that being the like central again, like that's just the central contradiction of of liberalism that it cannot, you know what I mean? It can't ever facilitate or can't ever
1: cross that gap. Yeah, it's, it's a formal equality before the law, but your your potentiality to shape this formal equality, this, these forms of the law which determine you and your own conduct, are undermined by the fact that the content of the social community defined by the law is really... Manageable in terms of property, so the content is always so it's always disputed. And I think it's, it could also bring something out of this discussion in um, the of about notions of the deserving poor and the undeserving poor, the the good citizen poor and the bad citizen poor. But right. really, dialectically, they're always the same because in the rational state, everything is ordered as it, as it needs to be. So there is no the deserving poor and the undeserving poor are the same thing, and the distribution of handouts is is arbitrary and upon the, the divine miraculous good of of, of, the, of the bourgeois class.
0: Well, right. Yeah. It's the, it's the self, it's the tautological logic, which is like, oh, you're poor because you didn't work hard enough. And Mm. somebody can be like, oh, well, I, I, you know, I worked as hard as possible. I just faced a lot of problems. And it's like, well, no, I mean, if what you're saying is true, then uh, our system is fucked up. And I know our system is perfect. So Mm. it's your own fault. Like, I guess what Freud would have called kettle logic
1: yeah so the kettle logic felicitism um, someone comes to Freud and says uh, can I, can you return this kettle, please and says, Well firstly um you didn't lend me a kettle if you did i I'd, I'd never use it free if I did use it it 's not broken <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah it's funny i didn't know that there was a name for that i I was frantically googling kettle logic <laughs> after you said it um, but that's like a that's like a a, a device that 's played up for jokes in television all the yeah.
1: time well tr- trump is great at kell logic you know it's like <laughs> if, if i didn't say it and if i did say it it was misreported and if it wasn't misreported it's just being taken out of context if it wasn't taken out of context uh it's just being used by the other side anyway so you shouldn't trust it and you're, yep. you're, you're, you're just jealous and if you're not and if you're not jealous what's the problem with you why would you be jealous of me <laughs> boom <laughs> just, ref-
2: yeah. just logic just like <laughs> hemmed in by
1: logic it very easy to be donald trump uh,
0: <laughs> yeah you just have to be born in the right circumstances yeah, right
1: very easy Uh yeah. it's a very
2: rational position to be in this next bit goes more i think we're stepping into the critique of uh of social liberalism now. So rather, turn the matter around and tell yourself, I am a human being. I don't need to first produce the human being in me because it already belongs to me, like all my qualities. The socialists also taking away property fail to observe that this assures itself a continued existence in ownness. Are only money and goods a property then, or is every view my thing, a thing of my own? Work, work alone doesn't make you a human being because it is something formal, and its object is contingent, but it depends on who on who you, the one working, are. The author of the ego and his own does not see that concepts as self-consciousness or man are religious in nature. He makes religion a causa sui, as if specters could move about on their own. And that last bit is actually from from Specters' remarks, mm-hmm. but I felt was somewhat relevant to this to the three little sections that I brought up before
1: then. Yeah, it's it's part of Derrida's critique of Sterner as uh, both simultaneously one of the best, one of the worst son, sons of Hegel, so to speak. <laughs> and it's, I guess it's because like, the mystification of of the world is something that Derrida thinks Hegel already does. And I think yeah, maybe, but I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know if the, I don't know if Stirner gives them as much of an agency. I think their agency isn't that they've always been moving through the world; it's that their agency, in a sense, is given to us if we consider it for more than five minutes because our ideas actually work. Right in their agency is, has been established to an extent actually it hasn't really been established in Hegel but if you think about what pe- what makes people go as Alphacet says when he talks about ideology what makes them go these spirits do have agency because Maybe Derrida's critique is that Stirner doesn't necessarily ground them as much as he would like in a material practice, in the same way that something like Foucault or Althusser does. But yeah, I do think this is. Um, I did think there's definitely an underlying materialism from it, and I think this is the idea. I think the idea of it being a first-person kind of experience of the Marxist critique of ideology would would, would fit this quite well. But yeah, sorry. To get to the socialism stuff, the socialism stuff for me, I just read it as the socialist wants to essentialize society for the good of everyone, but. Really, it's the good of society. Because society is everyone. Society is in, in, and for itself. Everyone. And well, then it's, you have a. So,
0: it, oh, it's kind of interesting. Like you, you were putting together some notes, Adam, for this, and I glanced at them, mm. and there was a spot where you really highlighted how, Stirner mentions that w- he's not against socialism. He's against sacred socialism. Mm. He's not against socialism as uplifting humans and, and giving them more economic opportunities and, and making them more uh, equal or giving them th- the potential to be more equal mm. but he is against the sacred socialism the socialism for socialism's sake and not for mm. the people it's ostensibly supposed to be helping
1: yes uh, that's uh, Stirner's Critics which is the, the essential text for me for understanding the, the impact especially of the concept of, of the unique because without Sterner's Critics if you read the Byington Translation you would be completely stuck in the the, the specter of the ego mm-hmm. but yeah, the, the marxist yeah the socialism stuff is mainly i always read it as the idea that the worker becomes a sacred entity uh, whose welfare is to be nourished this worker is to be nourished the worker society is to be nourished but really i think marx picks up on this quite well to be what the workers really need is their own self abolition they don't want mm-hmm. to be themselves because they they they, they we are the workers. May turn to each other and say, "We are nothing, and we should be everything." And that—that's a stern, right position. Yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, and you it makes to, me wonder. Uh, um, it makes me wonder of the value of like uh, socialist realist art sometimes, right? Because it's like, is that actually a depiction of workers? on their way to their self abolition as the proletarian class, or is that a fetishization of what becomes a static image of a worker that now becomes a thing to
1: be aspired towards? Cause the worker is lionized. Yes. It's this kind of, it's, it's, it's the, it's the It's the, it's the idea that, you know, you can just be the best worker rather right. than you, you can, communism allows you to be the best worker you can be rather than, the best creator you can be necessarily because mm-hmm. you're doing it down to the, at least in the the Soviet sort of model of the planned economy. This next quote I think is
2: good and kind of like goes further down that, down that line. He works only to get away from work. He wants to make labor free only so that he can be free from labor enough. His work has no satisfying content because it is only assigned by society is only a stint, a task an occupation. And conversely, his society doesn't satisfy him because it only gives work. It yeah, gives him work in five-year installments.
0: <laughs> well, this is like um, people. People will ask me; they'll be like, "What's your career plan?" And I'll be like, "Well, I'm 29. I'd really like to be semi-retired by the time I'm 35." <laughs> and they're like, "35," and I'm like, "Yeah, you know, I'll still podcast and <laughs> and do some things here and there, but I I, I want to just be able to coast and and really be self-determining." And they're like, "You can't do that." And I'm like, "Why the fuck?" why the fuck not <laughs> there's yeah. you know if you can make it work like the, you should do it and i think that they just they can't wrap their heads around the idea that i wouldn't have a thing like a job or or a school or or some kind of set schedule yeah. or something because without that it's like people feel lost it's like i uh, my job had me working I, w- I work as a valet and as a uh, lot attendant and i was at a hospital for a couple of weeks and they sent me an old dude who was um he had been retired for four years and he complained to me that there yeah. wasn't enough work <laughs> to do at the job he was like i could just listen to the radio at home and i was like dude you need to relax you should <laughs> just listen to the radio at yeah. home
2: right yeah this is weird society Weird internalization of like the Christian work ethic,
0: Mm -hmm.
2: the Protestant work ethic is so bizarre to me. This almost reminds me a little bit of like some of the anti-work critique too, that I've done an anti-work episode. The contradiction of working only to get away from work, right? Like that's just, that dialectic is irreconcilable. You know what I mean? It's almost goes back to that same, I mean, it's the same movement of like good, evil, uh, God, the devil, right? You can't have... You can't have one without the other love and marriage, right? To, to borrow from like married and children.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's why, that's, that's, why I, uh, that's why I'm so reticent to classify anything that I enjoy doing as work, right? Because it's like, even if it makes me money and I have to schedule my time around it and it has all of the characteristics of work, if I don't think about it as work, I can kind of, I, I, I can ignore that contradiction. And I can just like, right. it, it doesn't weigh on me. I don't have, I don't have that kind of background noise of anxiety about it all the time.
1: You have to constantly be working harder so you can get a better, so you can at least attempt to maybe get higher up in your own sort of position as a company. So, what so, you so doing that you that can work less. So I can, yeah, <laughs> so I can work less later. Yeah, oh, exactly. So you, <laughs> you're, you, know, decrepit, you know, you're becoming decrepit. Well,
0: that's the thing is it's like if it wasn't that way, then anybody who ever got like a made a billion dollars in a year would never work another day in their life. Mm. But that never happens. People are, even if they're already wealthy, they're always working.
1: Well, they get Jerusalem syndrome. You know, they they think because they've made a billion dollars that the rational system has meant that you, you are selected. And like, they're altruists, you know, they, mm-hmm. like they can't let people go without their, without their guidance. They've made a billion dollars. <laughs> Would Christ turn away from that cross and not make another billion dollars? Wow, that's,
0: uh, <laughs> that has some bite to it.
2: <laughs> uh, I love this next one. This is like trademark Sterner here is just this little line People believe that one cannot be more than human, rather one cannot be less.
0: I mean, that's, that's like the whole thing about just being dehumanized, right? It's like even in your dehumanization, it's sold back to you as the rationale of that's why you are human. So mm. stop, stop worrying, stop being haunted by this idea of how humanized am I or not by my obedience to this or that system and just start worrying about getting what you need, getting you
1: know, what you need for yourself. Yeah, to be dehumanized the d is is a, say second it's a secondary concept to the human mm-hmm. so it implies it implies a fall in the very biblical sense so you can't actually be less than human you can only be a fallen human and don't worry if with with the right amount of 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 work and public service we we can rehabilitate you into into our holy spirit right
2: exactly.
0: or the
1: right whatever acts or like
2: the prayers or what have you can integrate you into the christian system right mm. what i think is I don't know. Maybe a flight of fancy here is to like look at this. This more more human than human concept reminds me of of Blade Runner, and it reminds me of the two characters, uh, Deckard and Roy Batty, and how transcend. Like at the the climax of the film, right, is is Roy saving Deckard? Roy, the less than human, like the imperfect, mm-hmm. the copy, right, the simulacra, saves Deckard, who is presumably the human, and but. In actuality, like in functioning, like materially functions as a robot, and there's that night, there's a flip in that relationship mm. where Roy transcends his, even you could even say, like his, his notion, the concept of him as a worker or tool or whatever, like as replicant, as other, contra Deckard, as. Y- Human, but as in his labor is machine mm. so there's they're the mirror images of one another,
1: yeah batty has the ability to reorganize his body from being organized as a machine to being reorganized so, as something that has well, this difference built in it you know he's yeah, does batty even have does the replicants even have organs in in this this could be quite a type drone. But yeah, it's like in that. In
2: what what Roy is doing is coming to terms with his ownness in that moment, or like uh, you know, I think the the Nietzschean sort of overcoming oneself is also like another reading. But I think Sterner somewhat can apply there, and as far as like Roy is really taking, he like he's discarding the ideas of what both a human is and what a replicant is, and he's becoming his own. Unique, and that's why he decides to rescue Deckard. Because in so doing, he is so it's like that recognition of of what being an egoist really is. It's not like I do what I want. I enjoy this the suffering of this being. It's no, I transcend that. I recognize them as having their own unique, which is worthy of salvation. And then Mm. that's why that's the motivation for Roy to save
1: Rick. Because Roy is also in a way. Broken, uh Deckard's programming. Yes, because he, he just he's he can die on his own terms now. The organizational chain has sort of been broken. There's this, the contradictions have exploded, and suddenly you've just got this. Well, what do we do now? But that's that's the aspect of freedom. Hell yeah. So this next bit, I think, even flows into that, picks up on this notion of the concept
2: of like the human being, and I think has some relevance, even in light of that, like metaphor with the uh, we we're discussing with Rory Batty and and Rick Deckard. Hmm. So liberalism proceeds in the following changes. First, the individual is not the human being. Therefore, his individual personality counts for nothing. No personal will, no capriciousness, no orders or decrees. Second, the individual has nothing human. Therefore, no mine and thine or property counts. Third, since the individual neither is a human being nor has anything human, he is not to be at all. He is, as an egoist with his egoistic things, to get annihilated by criticism, to make room for the human being, the human being only now
1: discovered. Shana here is going through sort of the three phases of liberalism. Uh, the first one, would be before this, was the, the, I mean, for all three of these phases, the human being is l- sort of lingering as a spirit of a god that's just been sort of vanquished as to guarantor of meaning in in the world. So the first mm-hmm. is rationality, divine reason, which is incredibly Christianized. Very it's basically it's a sort of conservative paganism that takes Lutheranism and adds a rational flavour to it and takes a state of something of realization of rational concepts. And this produces the idea of people Basically, in relation of it produces the bourgeoisie, well, not produce the class that defines this era is the bourgeoisie, and then in the second one, which is the crit, which is not an actual existing state, but a critique of the state of liberalism that comes forward from uh, Stirner and the other young Hegelians, which is social liberalism. And he's probably talking with people less like Marx and more like uh, Arnold Rouge, um, possibly even the Bauer brothers, but they probably come in later. So the individual has nothing human. Uh, therefore no mine or dine or property counts there's not be, be, be any property anymore property is the root of all disparity in class structures the bourgeoisie keep welfare away from the people because they pay very badly in exchange for that the state gives them offices and promotes them as being rational beings but they're not the individual has nothing human has nothing is destitute and therefore we should organize the state for its welfare and the welfare of society is the welfare of all and the all of society becomes this lurking thing that denigrates the individual takes away all property that could be even notionally his under liberalism and leaves them with only more work and a constantly working strain of working to produce things and to be a good worker now this third one is critical liberalism which is the liberalism which is because it's, it's critical it basically says that all of these things the workers and the bourgeoisie they're both all tied up with their own welfare their own profits their own egoism and they're not realizing what was really rational, what was really perfect, what was really good about all of this, which was humanity as such. And this is why we need to get rid of all these egoist things, all of these contingencies, and make room for the true necessity. Necessity is not rational bourgeois state. It is not the rationality of welfare. It is the rationality of the human being only now discovered. Now, the human being now discovered is a reference to Feuerbach who is sort of the leader of these young Hegelians and um, basically Feuerbach says, and we find a quote here, he's talking about Hegel here when he says the old philosophy, he says the old philosophy possesses a double truth. The truth is for itself which was not concerned with man, that is philosophy. And the truth for man That is religion. The new philosophy, on the other hand, Feuerbach's philosophy, which is the philosophy of man, is also essentially the philosophy for man. It possesses an essentially practical, and indeed in the highest sense practical, tendency, without damaging the dignity and independence of theory. The realm of thoughts Feuerbach continues indeed it is in closest harmony with it it takes a place of religion and has the essence of religion within itself in truth it is itself religion that's one of the final quotes from the philosophy of the future and this is where the practice the new practice comes about the practice of criticism of destroying the egoist and now that we've discovered that this divine essence of rationality of welfare of hu- of, of god was all the same thing it was all humankind the whole time as Feuerbach has put it out this is the task That we're meant to be going through
0: so it's almost like um there's kind of a theological notion that like all major religions are essentially worshiping the the same god and he just has different aspects or is revealed to different peoples in different ways and this Mm -hmm. is a bit like the secular version of that which is like yes we all had reverence for this thing but like really all of these teachings were about humanity and and society Mm -hmm. at large but Sterner says, like you know, you don't go far enough. Like these teachings are really just things that we all individually learn. You know, there's mm-hmm. something that takes place in in our internal worlds. It was inside us all along. Yeah, maybe <laughs> maybe the real maybe the real theology was the friends I made along the way. Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but Scheler thinks there is something to this this criticism. He thinks that. Um, for round the other quote, um, Stirner isn't impressed with this with this human with Feuerbach, but he says, "You know, there's something you can get out of these critical liberals that want to take everything away from the contingencies of welfare and the bourgeoisie and proletariat. Well, not the proletariat, the workers in this case, or the rabble as he may call them, or the pauper, purple in uh, in German." And he says, "Now, even if I'm not much infused to be free or human, I still don't want to miss any opportunity to put myself forward or assert myself." Criticism offers me this opportunity by teaching that if something takes root in me and becomes indissoluble, I become its prisoner and slave, i.e. a possessed person. An interest, whatever it may be for, has captured a slave in me if I cannot get rid of it, and is no longer my property, but I am its. Let's therefore accept the lesson of criticism. To let no part of our property become stable, and to feel happy only in dissolving it. Now this is Stirner really taking the idea of fixity and identity to its to its core, but also doing a critique of any kind of domination, because domination always tries to perpetuate itself. Domination always substantializes the offer as that which needs to be dominated. He, he takes this lesson from Hegel that, you know, that which tries to dominate the world just to constantly make it force it to recognise its own egoism hasn't actually been assured of its own egoism, nor does it truly believe in it. And will be dominated. Uh, in the same way, by being dependent on, look, you know, I am the egoist. I am creative. Nothing you must recognize me, but that you you assume that there's a the sort of substantial thing that can do that. Whereas only I mean, you can do that. Right. This is a, it's a non-denominational part of a and I think Saul Newman really brings us out in his essay on stern's voluntary uh, servitude, which I think also uses a bit of Foucault as well. I haven't okay, read that. Was one yet. <laughs> that, was, that was a it's long like, rant. But, that's one I haven't read yet.
2: Maybe no, it's done, good. It's I, very actually. Limiting. John and I, <laughs> John and I have like done a couple of the Sterner pieces that uh that newman has written mm-hmm. i've only I've read like that one so <laughs> outside of <laughs> having saul on the show to begin with for anybody who wasn't aware he, he said thesis antithesis and synthesis on that show and i was like it was, it was heartbreaking <laughs> <laughs> right these next few quotes i'll read them all as one but they're sort of disparate but i think they're all kind of go forward in in kind of interrogating this somewhat similar idea. I want to be and have everything that I can be and have. If others are and have something similar, what do I care? Something equal, the same, they can never be nor have. I do them no harm, as I also do not mock no harm, do the rock no harm by having the advantage of motion over it. If they could have it, they would have it. I don't think of myself as anything special, but as unique. Without a doubt, I am similar to others. However, this holds good only for my comparison or reflection. In fact, I am incomparable unique. for yourself as far as you can, and you can have done your part, because it is not given to everyone to break through all limits, or more eloquently, that is not a limit for everyone, which is one to the others. I cannot become a human I, because I am simply I, and not mere human being. All of these quotes again there's they're separate but they're they're getting towards or they're going towards the same idea, the idea of the unique that sterner i think will be moving more of a focus into as we step into part two of the book
0: yeah and it's like the um the particularity of of each unique you know he's talking about like it is not given to everyone to break through all limits or more eloquently that which that is not a limit for everyone which is one to the others which is to say like not everything seems like the same barriers to be overcome for each of us and you know uh, here in the top quote without a doubt i am similar to others however this holds good only for comparison or reflection it's like saying like you can you can notice and you can you can take take part in and 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 uh, take an interest in the differences and similarities between you and other people but you can't chalk those up as some kind of um, uh, objective thing that, that ties you all together
1: there is no social substance because social substance is social subject and subjects are just these, it's not, not a sort of field of subjectivity. There are subjects that are produced by their circumstances and there are right. subjects that consciously can try and posit themselves and break through the limits of what subjectivity could be like in a given area. Um, Which uh, is what she sees is subjectivity. This sees the means of subject production <laughs> of position. I think that's very Dele- Deleuzean Deleuzian or Guitarian as well. Sterner mm-hmm. definitely maxes out the free synthesis, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah. You know, it's he's making connections of anything he wants to. Right. Uh, he can break them at any time. And you got the third one, which is all of them are his. <laughs> I like how he makes the distinction between
2: like this notion of like being special or like elevated, I mm-hmm. think, is but unique in making that distinction clear. So I think that is easy to like. I think people will, you know, the kind of lay understanding of Stirner is that you know, they take the notion like that there's something special about, like that raises the unique above. And that's not, that's not the movement, right?
1: Yeah, because the unique cannot be raised above. It cannot be raised above itself into an essence over itself because it, it can never be captured.
0: Well, that was kind of uh, Marx's critique of Stirner in the German ideology, right? Like mm. that was why he called him St. Max. Because he was saying, oh, he doesn't realize that he's actually uh, just placing himself at the the center of all things. And it's kind of a bit of a misreading of what Stirner's concept of the self really
2: is. It's almost like, yeah, there's a very much... A Deleuzean, like kind of, un- Watari does this too. It's like this very like extreme form of materialism, and I'm wondering now that like is is that maybe the commonality is this like very grounded
1: materialist approach to. It's an eminently self-producing, self-centralizing form of being that can make connections in can make as many material connections as it as it can, whilst at the same time having the ability to not consciously let them become something over and above themselves, and the idea that they can break those connections and they repeat them in different yes. ways right. there is definitely I would yeah there's like uh, that rhizomatic kind of nomadic hmm. element the plasticity element of this I think really is sort of the subject substance which allows Jena to sort of take on forms in these different ways and I think you could even see like kind of um uh, the positive side of plasticity as being this ability to take on new forms to connect with things to be receptive to them and to synthesize it like in a conjunctive sense. And then you could say the negative side, uh, the contradictory side is that which breaks apart the fixity of certain forms and then you know, um, allows for them to be repeated later on. There's rec- there's a sort of, I don't know if Schoenner's Einziger would record as much to the extent that the body of our organs does, but there is definitely an element of deorganization to the Schoennerian subject and the sort of raw body of the Schoennerian individual. It's like an assemblage of enunciation. Mm. The Laozi is coming. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, exactly. Um, and I think, well, maybe I should should I, I should probably read these together? I think because it's a good, good little um, contradiction here. First quote I'll read is from Stirner: "In place of the individual's God, now God of all, namely the human being, has been raised up. It is indeed the highest thing in all of us to be human, but since no one can quite be what the idea human being implies." The human being remains for the individual a, loft beyond, a lofty beyond, an unattained supreme being, a God. But at the same time, this is the true God because it is fully adequate for us. In other words, is our own self, we ourselves, but separated from us and raised over us. So there's the alienation that we've discussed, I think, a lot in like elevating these concepts above ourselves and raising that over us and in so doing we are alienated from our ownness or our uniqueness, mm. right? Like I think we've clearly established that and I mean that's what this
1: I think is ultimately going towards, right? Mm. It's definitely I think there's also a lot of there's a lot of feuerbark being pushed into consideration here. It's like the Feuerbach knows that no one can actually be the full human being. But at the same time this human being is this divine in a divine essence its mask is pulled off and it's the human essence doesn't make it any less uh transcendent, it just makes it more palatable to a society that wants to see itself as as post-religious. Right. This next quote is from Deleuze's from Nietzschean philosophy
2: that I thought was relevant here. And Nietzsche's positive task is twofold. The overman and transvaluation, not who is man, but who overcomes man. The most cautious people ask today, how may man be preserved? Zarathustra, however, asks as the soul, and the first one to do so, how shall man be overcome? The overman lies close to my heart. He is my paramount and sole concern, and not man, not the nearest, not the nearest, not the poorest, nor the most suffering, not the best.
1: This, this is this is the, this attempt to sort of move beyond like, beyond Stirner, because if he's, you know, say, he said to quote, not who is man, but who overcomes man. And the, the the move from what is man to who is man is the move that he makes Nietzsche, in Nietzschean philosophy. To get the quote you uh, you brought up last episode, um, you know Nietzsche turns the art office, sophists. Sorry, Stirner turns the art office into the question of who is man, and that's where the, he tries to reveal nihilism as the root of the dialectic. And I think for for Deleuze and Nietzsche, the thing is that, well, for Deleuze at least, it's not that it's whoever comes man is that who takes man into the next stage. Where Stirner thinks, yeah, you know, who is man? Oh, he's not me. <laughs> and it's sort of yeah. overcoming and the fact of rejecting him.
0: Well, that's that. Yeah, that's a bit. It isn't it? Is it's like I think Schtunner. If you asked him who overcomes man, he would be like, oh, um, wh- why do I need to? You know, F- I'm I'm not man. So how could I overcome th- my being? man you know I'm just me I'm just Stirner or you know
1: man is the rope type you know tied man's the rope over from the abyss between you know himself and Superman and Stirner just sort of sees himself as the abyss <laughs> right um, ready to devour both when they fall in
0: well and it's like if you're trying to overcome your humanity then aren't you still being ruled by that abstract idea of your humanity yeah
2: yeah it'd be like a an anarchist being against the state right it's that same same relationship mm.
0: mm-hmm exactly
2: this last quote i think even goes to this as well from page 167 or once yeah one sixty-seven. i do not assume myself because in each moment i am really setting up or creating myself for the first time am only i not by being assumed but by being set up and again set up only in the moment
0: that's kind of like asking before you have a thought do you think to yourself i'm going to have a thought now and set it in mm. motion or does it just
1: happen flow yeah yeah automatically i mean uh, yeah the postulation of, of oneself is always tied if you're thinking the practical activity is tied to a willing or a knowing or it's tied to an action mm-hmm. and sterner doesn't see what if i think we're saying here is i'm not assuming myself at the front of an action because Set myself up is the sort of the sense in which he's worried that you if you set yourself up before an action, you're setting yourself up as a certain kind of give of doer that's something constructed by a socially given category, right? Rather, he's going back to, and what my sense is, is really abstract Hegelian form of will, which is not assuming yourself, but what starts in the Hegelian moment of will is really not an eye, but really just like an abstract indeterminacy. And from this abstract indeterminacy, this power of the negative can establish difference between itself and what it wants and then reappropriate that difference later and consume it he doesn't have to assume himself because there's nothing this is already imminent and creating difference in the world that he can enjoy. I can't articulate it, but I'd love to tease out what you just said in the context <laughs> of Lacan. Oh, I don't know anything about Lacan. It's too, You're, hard. your in the
2: like in, in the enjoyment element of it as well. Like the like that relationship to d- to desire and how desire functions, is very similar to like how this concept of ownness or y- the unique mm. is like you know what I mean? Because it is the negative. Well, it's like you don't, starting you, point.
0: You don't posit your desire before you desire right. it either yeah. right like it comes from a place of initial indeterminacy as right. well yes that's a really good way to phrase that too that that thinking about it as an initial point of indeterminacy and then through the power of, of the negative you can actually arrive at what you that's yeah mm-hmm. I hadn't thought about it that way before we have
1: desire as lack and productive desire so we're getting the, the, the final synthesis of <laughs> yeah, exactly. and then that's gonna make everybody <laughs> mad <But> yeah um, <laughs> It's difficult though
2: because I think the so that's been my argument is that the negative, like okay, so Deleuze is the is talking more so about like a positive stance and Hegel, the Sterner, perhaps a, a negative. But I think that like the negative can be that's the whole thing though, is the negative isn't necessarily bad. Like the negative can it can be the creative basis for Deleuze and Guattari sort mm-hmm. of view it as, but I think in terms of the the terminology is different.
0: Well, it, it's like how Lacan,
2: De, Lacanian desire versus Deleuzean desire, like are two different, they're different concepts ultimately.
0: Well, it's like, it's hard for human beings to imagine that something comes from nothing, right. right? Because that's not our personal experience with it. But when you think about it, it's like, well, if something comes from something, then where does that something come from? So yeah. ultimately something has to come from nothing. Right. You know, that's kind of the, the, beginning and the the yeah. end point of of thought action the dialectic you know right. whatever you want to call it movement yeah um, is, a, is a nothingness or a, or a stasis
1: but that's a that's a hegelian challenge i mean the beginning of the science of logic is you know um okay can let's just think of being and it's nothing and then suddenly just this flash thinking of thinking of being seeing it so indeterminate and nothing you get this flashing that creates the movement that goes throughout the whole thing mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's almost a cosmological sense in which you know could something you know could something come from nothing it's like well if you think about the concept of something and nothing are you really what's the content there yeah yeah you know, something is nothing isn't or something is what nothing is what oh okay oh, oh. there's a sense in which this the very that level of abstraction is already going to give you an indeterminacy definitely
0: yeah. yeah
1: i wonder i'm not read up well enough on on spinoza
2: but i'd love to like engage with how spinoza and sterner
1: would sort of jive in that sense if he got if he got spinoza it would have been through well i'm, I'm, I'm i don't know how much you've read but it, he at least went to most of like hegel's lectures and if he went to a lot of history of philosophy he wouldn't have got the most accurate spinoza i would i probably would say um, because there's that dialect too it's like the
2: the hegelian spinozan views of contradicting or views of universality
1: Mm. i don't know if spinoza allows for a negation in the, in the same way i don't that there, it's, every time there's a new book like every couple of years on this damn thing um, right the, the original one that most people do like to tap into was um uh, hegel or spinoza which sort of says uh, that hegel got a lot of spinoza wrong uh, but still make a productive relationship and then you've got recent couple of years you have uh gregor Moders hegel and spinoza and we're never going to really see the end of this. <laughs>
0: oh, man, that's kind of like uh, yeah. how every every so often there's a new philosophy book that's just being and another noun. Mm. Being yeah. in death, being in time, being yeah. in consciousness, being in politics, whatever. Like, <laughs> unique
1: or its property?
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> well, since there since there exist other, since those exist already, there can only be... Like there has to be being in time for there to be something else in time.
0: I'm just going to write one called being and being. That's just a bunch of truisms and it's going to sell like hotcakes. Being and becoming.
1: (laughs) Becoming being.
0: (laughs) There's someone actually
2: um, that is working on, uh, this is a little bit off topic, but along the same lines, is somebody's working on a, um, uh, what is it? Capitalism and autism. Oh, interesting. And like okay. the Deleuzean, you know, schizophren- instead of schizophrenia and capitalism, mm-hmm. autism and cap- capitalism.
1: Is, is in a sort of technical term? I, I know capitalism in has references to autism. I don't know if it's a technical one. I don't know if it's going to be the most clinically sensitive given you know, the, some of the term. Yeah, lots of it since then.
0: I mean, people like to argue about whether or not De, Deleuze and Guattari were. Clinically sensitive enough, you know. Uh-huh. It's like that's always that can always be relitigated on on Twitter.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean that's 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 somewhat more of a creative one than the usual one that gets brought up to do with Mr. F- Monsieur Foucault and mm-hmm. his letters writing. Do we have any any final thoughts
2: overall on this portion of the book today or Anything that we didn't, um, we didn't cover?
0: Uh, I'm reason. just glad we had someone here to <laughs> hold our hands through it. <laughs> <Because> <laughs>
2: oh, absolutely.
0: This section of the book is a bit more confusing than the one we did last year. No, no, one
2: I was it. less, yeah, I was less, like I said, the first section, the first bit, the hierarchy, I think, was my favorite part. But as it delved into the three critiques, yeah, it was less exciting
1: than, than the first kind of quarter. It's, just, it's the same rhetoric all the time, you know. X is, <laughs> yeah, freedom of X is not my freedom. Uh, but yeah. what, about, what about why well freedom of why isn't my freedom either it, it's repeat rinse and repeat yeah yeah, yeah um, exactly yeah it was it was honestly i never get to talk about this shit and obviously yes, everyone listen, I, as everyone listening as I you guys know i've been unable to shut the fuck up the entire time so yeah <laughs> brilliant uh, <laughs> i guess that'll wrap up content
2: wise whomever wants to go first if as far as um letting us know what where we can
1: find your other projects or what else you've got going on you can find me on the acid horizon podcast um Acid Horizon Pod on Twitter. Uh, my ad is DeLuzo Hegelian, just to make everyone else mad. Um, you can find blogs. Uh, I do industrial music. You can find that one there. Uh, but yeah, great to be here. Thanks for having me on.
0: Cool, yeah. And. Uh- I'm John from Beep Pletus. Lettuce. You can listen to my show, BP Pletus. Lettuce. You can listen to my other show, Work Stoppage, which only uh, comments on labor-related issues. And I stream sometimes on twitch.tv slash Beep Lettuce Pod.
2: As a reminder, we did do uh, part one of this kind of series, which I will link in the show notes. But for Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour, you can find our Twitter at UnconsciousHH, Instagram at UnconsciousHH, and then again, patreon.com forward slash m-u-h-h and i am trying to get like 50 more additional patrons before the end of the year so consider us throwing throwing us a dollar uh to help support the show thank you both again turned out really well again another fucking excellent <laughs> episode and uh but yeah this will be uh, the machinic unconscious happy hour with cooper cherry signing off
0: thanks for having oh. me Thank, thank you for having me, me Yeah. Hell yeah. Well thank you both. That the was awesome.
1: Cool. Cool. Thanks so for doing the heavy lifting adam yeah. as well. <laughs> yeah. Oh I mean I'm gonna i I'm gonna sleep well tomorrow, right state, Which is can't care. to the old state of things. This is the
2: you got a violence of
1: violent because what happens there is a the murder of the queen, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. What I mean is the following with nothing
2: left but recycled, whitewashed, lobotomized people
1: as in block work orange.